Exciting, morbid, perverse, ambiguous, enigmatic, more fascinating than ever. Disco Beat tells us it's time for the next meeting of the Classic Horrors Club. How are you? I'm good. How are you? It, it seems like it's been forever since we've done this. Yes, it has. We missed an episode, that thing called life that I hear so many people claim interferes, and I experienced that big time. Graciously, you you actually were the one that said we could postpone. You know, we've been doing the show for almost two years, and we we've never skipped a beat. When we launched, you were really concerned about, you know, sticking to a particular release date. And I think in my mind, you know, we do one episode a month. And if we get it out in that first week or so, people are going to listen. And if we did a weekly show, I think it'd be a little different. But with a monthly show, we're, we're pretty darn consistent. And this was the first time, as you said, real life intervened. And unfortunately, we had to miss a month. But uh, I think that we I think it was the right call. And so here we are. The whole month concept works really well because we are celebrating Halloween this month, and we are going to have a happy Hammer Halloween. That music was called Hammer. It's by Tom Fall and Ben Nicky from DJ Box Best of 2012, and that's available on iTunes. So let me call this meeting to order. If you don't mind, I just kind of want to explain why we missed an episode. I don't want to get too much into it, but I do feel like I owe a thank you to all of our listeners, all of our readers and followers, because everyone reached out and gave me very kind thoughts when my father passed away. And that meant a lot. Uh, You know, I've always said Facebook is good at least one time a year, and that's for birthdays, but it really meant a lot, and it provided comfort to be able to look at Facebook and see so many people offering condolences, and if you are listening and you are one of them, I've probably responded offline, but I do want to just issue a thank you to cover everyone. It, It really means a lot. So that took me out of commission, and my daughter got married also. Kate and Travis. I'm recruiting them to be Mimiverse fans. They went with me to the 10th anniversary of Monster from Phantom Lake, and they went to the world premiere of Demon with the Atomic Brain. Unfortunately, none of us made it to the latest premiere, Guns of the Apocalypse, because of their wedding. But I want to mention and, and say congratulations to them. Yeah, definitely congratulations. I've met your daughter once. I don't think I've ever met Travis, I don't believe, but I have met your daughter, and, and I know how it's kind of crazy. You're, you're dealing with a lot of different things in the last month, but you know, at, at the end of it, you had a wonderful wedding. I saw the pictures, and so congratulations, the father of the bride, and, and Mimiverse fans, absolutely. Let's, let's, let's add more to the Mimiverse, and unfortunately, I didn't make the premiere either um, work. Oh, what's your excuse? You didn't have any deaths. You didn't have any weddings. Work, you know, and, and it's that thing called bills. 
Yeah, unfortunately, I'm coming off of a uh, crazy multi-month event where I'm filling in for a coworker. So, you know, ironically, this last week, things died off dramatically. Of course they did. She's back at work and ahead of schedule. So, but at that point, I was like, well, you know, my tickets had already gone and so I couldn't pull it off. The good news is, is that Chris is already hard at work at his next film, The Queen of Snakes. And a little bird told me that we're looking at a spring release date. Um, and then, um, probably a longer gap between that and the next film. So, uh, we've already talked and we plan on going whenever that happens in the spring and hopefully it won't collide with real life. But the plan is for us to be at the next one. It looked like they had a good time. Theater's been remodeled. So it looks like it was pretty darn close to a sellout. He, he was down to less than 40 tickets available about a week ago. So it seemed like they had a, a really good response. I know that he did say that he sold out of the DVD. Uh, which wow. never happened before. So he, he had no copies of the movie to sell. I just watched it last night. So I would tell you how I thought about it, but no, you'll have to tune into <laughs> the monthly Mimiverse audio cast, uh, the October edition, but I'll be talking a little bit about that. Don't want to give away any spoilers, but I did watch it last night and he continues to impress and has improved his filmmaking skills. And so uh, it's a different type of film and you need to go to the uh, St. Euphoria Pictures website. If you're not a Mimiverse fan, why aren't you? I've had enough life for for a while, so hopefully next spring everything will be good. Another thing I was unable to do besides record a podcast or go to a movie premiere was go to the Mid-Atlantic Nostalgia Convention in the Baltimore area. I had bought tickets, had a hotel reservation. I was going to meet my soulmate, Christy McNichol, <laughs> and... I was had to cancel. Now, the good thing that came out of this, and actually Steve Turek, who participates in the show often and is going to participate today, was going, and he lives very close to there. I was going to meet him. Well, when I was unable to go, he so graciously offered if I would send him something for Christy McNichol to sign, he would get it signed and send it back to me. So he did that, but... He went above and beyond because what I got from him was a customized video message from Christy McNichol to me. And it was very personal. It addressed you know, the reason that I wasn't there, and it meant a lot. Now, I want to say that as much as that means that Christy McNichol, my soulmate, and I have made contact now, it means a hundred times more that somebody would do that for me. And that just goes to what we always say about how nice monster kids are when you meet him and the friendships we make over these movies and meeting them at Monster Bash and everything. It meant an incredible amount to me that that Steve would do that for me. So Steve, I know you're listening. Thank you again very much for that. Why don't we segue and just uh, give a, a hearty congratulations to another friend of ours, Jonathan, who is now a father. Uh, no voicemail from him this month. Big shock. He's in dad mode. Uh, he's got a, uh, a beautiful daughter named Stella, uh, who I'm sure is keeping him uh, quite occupied. Jonathan stayed in touch with us, and congratulations to he and his wife, the new parents, and everyone looks healthy and happy, and that's one of those life events that puts a smile on your face, so congratulations. And I'm sure Stella's listening, so Stella, hello Stella, you're so cute, gooey gooey goo. <laughs> well, she got that really cute little monster blanket yes. that, uh, you know, I don't know, some wonderful people, you know, sent her way. We got to get them young, right? We got we to, you know, get her on the right path. 
We've already had that conversation. He's He's got a big responsibility. He's got to raise a little monster kid girl. Since we haven't been on for two months, we have quite a few new members in the Facebook group called The Classic Horrors Club Podcast. No requirements to join, just simply the interest. Sign up, we'll uh, approve you and say hello. But let's say greetings to these new members, Stephen Patrick Lee, Jules Boyle, Chris Calico, Tony Walker, Philip Hanshew, Brad Gilbert, Daniel Brown, John R. Blaker, Dustin Schroer, Dennis Downing, and I apologize, Heinz somebody. There are foreign characters in the last name, so I think we may have an international listener. I believe so, and I know who you're talking about, and, and I, yeah, we, we would butcher uh, your last name, so we apologize up front, and perhaps you can let us know the correct pronunciation so that can share your name appropriately. Was that, that's the last one? Yep, that was it. Welcome to everybody. This is fantastic. You know, it's, we've been gone for two months, but you guys have continued to keep following us and joining on Facebook, and we're getting some discussion there, and that's exactly what we want, and we're getting feedback and, and voicemails and discussion, and that makes me happy. It makes my heart happy. Yes, and I feel, Richard, like this is a very interactive episode. So we normally have our old business feature where we talk about things we left hanging from the last episode or research we needed to do. And our listeners have are up to the challenge. They actually have responded to help us go through some items that we left hanging last week. So, for example, uh, we had talked about three-term presidents in the last episode, and for the life of me, I can't remember why. But <laughs> we may claim to be movie historians. We are certainly not history historians or American historians or whatever. But luckily, we have a listener, Rob Kelly, who called and left a message, and that just happens to be a little hobby of his. So let's listen and have Rob clear that up for us. And by the way, he was able to leave that message by calling our number, 616-649-2582. That's 616-649-CLUB. Hi, guys. Uh, This is Rob Kelly. I'm a member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I got turned on to your show uh, by my pal Chris Franklin, who, of course, is a regular uh, calling guest on your show. I've really been enjoying uh, the classic horror commentary. I'm a big fan of those movies going way, way back. But I'm calling specifically just to mention one thing as I'm listening to your current episode of the Bell, a ghosty episode, which I'm enjoying very much. Um, You mentioned Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Um, I won't say I'm an expert in uh, FDR, but I probably know more about it than than the average person because I've read a lot of books about him. And I also do a horrible impersonation of him, as Chris can attest. You mentioned that uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt served three terms. Well, he served three full terms, and he was uh, actually elected to a fourth. He died just a couple of months into his fourth term, but he did, in fact, uh, run and won four solid terms. He is the only president to serve more than two. Uh, There was no hard and fast rule about it. It was just sort of a gentleman's agreement kind of thing, but due to the war and the depression, uh, he just sort of stayed on and and everybody just kept voting for him. So I just wanted to, to get that correction and then that he did not die during his third term. He died during very early in his fourth term, and then he was replaced by Harry Truman, as you stated. And then it was in the mid-50s that they passed, I forget which amendment it is, but they passed the amendment that said that you absolutely cannot serve more than two terms or, I believe, 11 years straight. There is some wiggle room there about 
can you run for two full terms of your own if you're a previously a vice president that maybe serves three years or something like that? Like Harry Truman, who served almost a full term taking over for FDR, uh, could have run for two full on his own, um, and he chose not to. Anyway, uh, that's just a little correction to save yourself some time of having to do it yourself. Again, I'm really enjoying uh, the show. It's a lot of fun, and uh, I'm a big fan of Bela Lugosi. He died on my birthday, which is sort of a weirdly uh, macabre, uh, macabre, let me say that right, uh, fitting in its own weird way. So, again, love the show. Big thanks to Chris Franklin for turning it on to me, and I'll be listening to future episodes. Bye. Thank you, Rob. We appreciate your help on that. You know, Rob is, I believe, the head of the Fire and Water Podcast Network, and our friend Chris Franklin is part of that with his Supermates podcast and his JLU cast that he does with his lovely wife, Cindy. This is the time of year that they do the House of Franklin sign. So they have, I believe, four episodes over two months that they devote to horror movies, and they pair them with a a comic book. That is in force right now. There have been two episodes. I really wanted to play the promo for that later on in the episode. I could not find it. I swear it used to be on their feed, but if I don't find it in time, uh, I won't play that, but everyone should check that out. It's the House of Frankenstein. I believe it's under the Supermates feed on the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Great, great podcast, and this time of year in particular, I really enjoy uh, listening to that. And Chris has called and left us messages before. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, Rob. Uh, We appreciate uh, feedback from your area of the podcasting woods. I thought of a couple of things after our last meeting that I didn't mention when we were talking about Return of the Vampire. And normally I just would let it go, but this was such a a big thing that we didn't mention. I just want to bring it up here. We didn't talk about the ending of Return of the Vampire. If you recall, it's one of those where a character breaks the fourth wall, looks at the audience. Actually, he's, he's telling somebody, you two fellows don't believe in vampires, do you? Then he looks to the camera and says, do you people? And I just want it for the record, I despise endings like that that break the fourth wall. I think it, it's one of the Peter Lorre films that does that. Uh, Beast with Five Fingers, maybe? I believe so. Yeah, it does. Yeah, yeah. It just it, it puts a different tone on the proceedings. It, it just doesn't belong. I mean, even if they had done it through the movie, you know, maybe. I think it's different when you have, like, the director, producer, you know, like William Castle, who's talking to the audience. And that works for me. Because you kind of, even though it may be a little cheesy, it's not a cast member that's breaking that fourth wall. And I, and I agree. That's, that's, you could edit that out of that movie, and, and I think that would be perfect. Before I forget, Return of the Vampire is going to be on Svengoolie. He's starting some more new episodes. I guess the new season for Svengoolie is, is starting. And apparently he signed a new deal with Columbia Pictures. Mm. And as we record this... We're a week away, so the first Saturday in October, kicking off, you know, October month of First Vanguli on, on MeTV, will be Return of the Vampire, and the second week is going to be Cry of the Werewolf. Kind of promising that if you sign a deal with Columbia, there's some Boris Karloff, Mad Scientist films that could be potentially popping up. You know, I love the fact that he kind of brought some of the Universal films back, we all love watching a, a gazillion Universal horror films, but it, it is fun, especially with Svengoolie, who did nothing but Universal for a long time, to start bringing in some of these other films. Even those bad 1970s made-for-TV movies are kind of fun for a change of pace. 
no, they're not as good as some of the others. But I, it, I don't know what they're doing for the rest of the month. But kind of a promising start to the month of October because as much as I, you know, I don't have Turner Classic movies anymore, and as much as I love to see their schedule, they haven't done anything really new in the last several years. And there's a lot out there that they could be throwing in. And so I, I like the fact that we're getting something a little different and a little uh, out of the ordinary for Spinguli. So hopefully that that stays the course for the rest of the uh, rest of the month. No, oh, that's awesome. I didn't know that. We also talked about Return of the Vampire and the, the reasons it probably couldn't be an official sequel to Dracula, uh, mainly that it wasn't Universal Pictures, so they kind of had to tweak it a little, make it Return of the Vampire. My question was, there was a movie called Return of Dracula. I am speculating here, but I imagine it, it came out 15 years after Return of the Vampire, so I'm sure there was enough distance by then, or uh, it was out of... I, I'm not sure, uh, but I, I just wanted to note that. That's another thing I meant to note, is that, well, if they couldn't use Return of Dracula, why could somebody else? But it, it must strictly be the time, I Well, think. I think it's it's part of that Universal thinks that they own more than they really do. I mean, that was part of the problem as with the films we're talking about today, at the very beginning of the Hammer gothic horror era in the late 50s, Universal was pretty adamant. No, you can't do... Yeah, yeah, you can do Frankenstein film, but there can't look anything like anything we did. And by the time you get to 1964's Evil of Frankenstein, then they're like, oh, okay, well, yes, you can do this and you can do this. And so they started incorporating some things that were that Universal seems to think that they own the rights to. And at the end of the day... Dracula and Frankenstein specifically, they're public domain, and I think that it's anything's free game. And granted, if you make your makeup look exactly like Boris Karloff, then I'd say, okay, maybe there's a claim by somebody. But Universal was really adamant about that for a while. They By the 1960s, they kind of backed off on that a little bit, and I, wisely so, I think, because there's certainly they, they own the rights to the scripts and, and maybe certain elements, but... I think some of it is is public domain, and, and I, I think the 1940s when Return of the Vampire, they were still very overprotective of their of their property. We also had talked about a box set, a very eclectic box set that had Return of the Vampire, Revenge of Frankenstein, Mister Sardonicus, and the Brotherhood of Satan. We weren't sure the studio or the label that put that out, but it is probably everyone's first guess. Mill Creek was uh, the ones to put that out, and. Gosh, I don't. I looked that up, but I didn't look to see if it's still in print or available. But I think Milk, yeah, Milk Creek's most of their recent releases, the box sets and stuff, have not gone out of print, uh, and they're reasonably priced. I mean, you know, they've kind of gotten away from the 100 horror sets because there's only so many times you can re-release that. I do like that they've expanded beyond that and have you know looked at other ways to kind of keep business going. Very much like Alpha Video. Uh, oldies.com they kind of ran the course there and they just there was nothing left in the public domain world so now they're releasing some other films and of course the films of Joshua Kennedy they're they're trying to to explore other avenues and I think that's exactly what Mill Creek is doing and we've gotten some nice releases from them I mean we've got we got the what the Gamera films from them the or the later trilogy of the Gamera we got the Diamagene trilogy just off the top of my head. So, uh, I, and I don't believe that there's any out of prints on any of those. And I don't think that 
Bell Creek has any intention of doing that anytime soon, which is nice because we know many other studios very quickly. Twilight Time, you know, how quickly do those things come out and they go straight in? And then they're up front. They say it's a limited release, but it gets a bit frustrating that if you're not there on opening day, then all of a sudden you've got to pay $150 on eBay if you want it. Uh, I appreciate when the film stays in print for more than just 30 days. Yeah, we were talking earlier before we started about these things that come out, and if you don't buy them, they suddenly are out of print, and they're on eBay for three or four times the cost. And I'm just, I'm never able to quite get in that groove. When I think that's going to happen, I buy something, and then, you know, there's plenty of supply. But that thing that I didn't, because I just didn't have the money at the time, or didn't think it was that important, that's always the thing I want later, and I can't get it unless I want to get a loan. Well, it's, you know, this, in the last couple of weeks, we have this new Batman coming, Batman Damned, which has all stirred up all this controversy, and DC's just adding fuel to the fire by saying, well, we're going to do a second print, but we're going to censor that image that caused all the problems, which, of course, now is immediately causing those first issues to rise even more. They're selling for $150 in some cases. Speaking to uh, my local comic shop owner, I happened to ask, I said, you don't have any of those lying around, do you? And he shook his head and he says, no, they went last week. And we talked about the price and he said, it's a comic that is not worth $150. He said, give it, you know, six months from now and the hype will die down and those prices will come down. And he said, the people who paid $150 just to see a certain appendage will regret the money that they spent. Which you can see online, by the way. Which you can see I, online. And not ashamed to say I had to look and see what it was oh, all of about. Oh, of course. <laughs> yeah, I was like, as soon as I saw the story, I was like, what's the big deal? So... As a longtime Batman fan, you know, that, to me, I was, like, a little disappointed because, to me, I just, yeah, that's just hype. That's, there's only, there's no art involved in that. That was hype. And the fact that DC's doing what they're doing disappoints me. And studios do this all the time with, with releases. They, they hype it up. They jack up prices. If you're patient, in most cases, those prices will come down unless it's like the Scarecrow of Romney Marsh from Disney, which I think is $500 now, and the Vincent Price Collection Volume 1 that I'm still kicking myself over that I didn't act like two days earlier when I wanted to get it and then missed out on the opportunity. And I will get that someday when the price comes down. I was in Minneapolis at the time and I went to Comic Book College, which is a great store up there, uh, by the way. And a man came in. This was, I think, on the Thursday, so the day after. And I don't really go in and buy new releases on Wednesday anymore. But he came in and goes, do you have the Batman penis book? And I hadn't heard anything about it till then. And, of course, after that, I saw it everywhere. But I thought, what in the world is he talking about? He is probably, is he a true collector? Probably not. He's no, those that definitely not. Think that he can buy it for $5 and then turn around and make a profit on eBay, which is another reason why those prices go skyrocketing. And if you just have some patience, more times than not, this stuff will come available, much like most of the movies we love. You know, you can go ahead and go through the bootleg market. We've all done it. But sometimes if you're just patient, most of those titles will eventually get released. Unless it's I Was a Teenage Werewolf and I Was a Teenage Frankenstein, that everybody has a copy of that now anyway. And I don't know how many of us would, would actually, depending on how good the Blu-ray is, you know, how many people would actually double dip at this point. I might, you might, but a lot of other people wouldn't. 
One final bit of old business, and you kind of talked me off the ledge before we started. And I'll be upfront. We were very clear in our very first words of the last podcast that we weren't sure if you pronounced it Bella Lugosi or Bela Lugosi. To me, Bella is more natural, rolls off the tongue better. Oddly, and maybe because it was in my mind, have seen several things on that since we recorded and people insisting that it's pronounced a certain way. And, you know, I, Richard, like I said, talked me off. We don't really care. You know who we're talking about. We mean no offense if we mispronounce his name. But my point of doing this is we have another voicemail, and this is from a new listener. Uh, his name is Seth from Bloomington, Illinois, which he'll tell you. So, Seth, thank you for listening. We appreciate your voicemail. Pop on over to Facebook if you're on Facebook and join our group. He talks about our Bela Bella episode and just listen to his pronunciation. Hi, Jeff and Rich. This is a listener named Jeff Beal. I'm from Bloomington, Illinois. It's my first time calling into the show. I'm really excited to do so. And I just wanted to leave a couple of uh, voice comments about the last uh, Bella Lugosi Lives podcast. Um, I've been a Bella Lugosi fan for more than half of my life. Uh, you know, I appreciate the nuances of Karloff and his acting ability, and certainly he was more successful over the course of the career, which you guys touched on. Um, even some of his latter output was, you know, Targets and uh, Curse of the Crimson Cult are, you know, considered classics, at least in my book. But there's something about Bella Lugosi that's just, it's so visceral, it's so in the blood, and of course, you know, Boris Karloff called him poor Bella his whole life. Uh, I think that was also touched upon. He was stuck working in Poverty Row. He was exploited by the major studios. But something about him and uh, just the venom he brought to every role uh, has stuck with me as a monster kid. And uh, it's hard for me to, to, to veer away from that. So to focus on three films from different points of his filmography, you know, that meant a lot to me. And I know it meant a lot to other listeners out there, uh, I actually would rank the three films uh, that you touched on a little bit differently, at least biographically speaking. I, the first one I ever saw of uh, between Murders in the Rue Morgue and Return of the Vampire and Bride of the Monster was actually Bride of the Monster. Uh, my inroad to Bela Lugosi uh, later in life, after having seen Dracula and a few others as a child, was uh, through Ed Wood. And through seeing Ed Wood uh, films on various places on Saturday afternoon television and things like that. And the first one I ever caught with Bella was Bride of the Monster. And something about the, the ramshackle quality of that film, the bare bones set, the incongruity of the stock footage and the monsters and sort of the ineptitude of the entire thing, uh, it stuck with me. And it, it was, uh, you know, to, not to condescend, but a little bit charming. That, that Bella was, this was kind of his last outlet, his last speaking role. I think just in terms of um, sentimental favorites, that one might be up there for me. I was never a big fan of Murders of the Rue Morgue, even though it's an hour long. I, I find it kind of plodding and slow. And um, as, as you guys pointed out, there, there it seems like they're, they're unnecessary pieces. It's a, it's a wonder that they even made feature-length running time with it. Um, Return of the Vampire, I would rank actually as second, uh, I, I do find it, uh, the, the, the eeriness, the fogginess of that film, um, I, I find it rather engaging. Uh, I also think that the first five minutes of the film are legitimately terrifying. Uh, maybe some of the most terrifying vampire work that, that Bella's ever done, perhaps outside of Dracula. Again, thank you, Seth. We really appreciate you calling in. 
Again, I want to say that the way you can leave that a voicemail is 616-649-2582 or 649-CLUB. And make a note of that because at the end of the episode, we have a, another contest. We haven't done that in a while, and you will want to be able to leave us a voicemail or you will want to be able to send us an email at classichorrors.club at gmail.com. The Facebook group, you can leave a message all kinds of ways. So uh, research the way that's best for you and we'll tell you at the end of the episode how you can win what I think is a pretty awesome prize. Yes, there's there's some cool prizes uh, at the end and I agree. It's The main prize is kind of fun. We'll talk about it at the end, but it's it's something that some of which have been hard to find for a while. Believe it or not, of all the, <laughs> all the things, some of these uh, that prize involves something that's been hard to find. So yeah, and I didn't mean to say that there was one cool prize. We actually have three really cool prizes. So there will be a, a first, second, and third place winner. We'll tell you how you can enter that at the end. Absolutely. Let's get to the meat of the episode. It's our Hammer Halloween episode. Do we pronounce that Hammer or Hammer? <laughs> hammer. <No. laughs> hmm. I'm going to go with Hammer. Uh, let's go with Hammer. I agree just a brief introduction on this first part. We're, we're only going to talk for a minute about it. There is a new Blu-ray called Hammer Horror, the Warner Brothers Years. Well, Rich, why don't you go ahead and start? I'm sorry. Go ahead. Well, uh, this is a, a brand new documentary from, <laughs> let's go with the name thing here. Uh, is it uh, uh, Diabolic or, or Diabolique? It's, we're not talking Diabolic DVD. This is uh, Diabolic Films or DiaboliqueFilms.com. It's a wonderful documentary. I can't even remember how I stumbled upon it. Maybe Facebook, or maybe you sent something to me on it. I've seen uh, a lot on Facebook. There was some controversy about it. I believe they did a crowdfunding Kickstarter or something for it, and there were some delays, and there was a, some kind of nasty back and forth. And to be honest, I was skeptical, number one, if it would ever see the light of day or if it would be any good. But I did purchase it. I, once it came out, I saw some good things about it. I think there, you know, the thing when when you're doing a crowdfunding is if there's delays, I think you just need to be upfront and honest. We kind of got in on this the eleventh hour, so I don't know if maybe they just weren't upfront with the delays, and if there just was a lack of communication. It did get released finally, and uh, it's a hundred one minute documentary put together by Marcus Hearn, who is, I believe, the the go to hammer guy these days. He's written some amazing books. Uh, the Hammer Story, the authorized history of Hammer Films. He co-wrote that with Alan Barnes. He did uh, The Art of Hammer, Hammer Glamour, some wonderful stuff. And he is the, the writer and director of this documentary, which takes a look at kind of a unique time period and relationship. Not the beginning of Hammer Films that we're going to be talking about with our films today, but the other end, towards the end of Hammer and their relationship with Warner Brothers uh, in the United States and which has a lot to do with the complicated rights issues of what movie company can release this DVD in this country and that country. I really enjoyed it. it it's uh, I love documentaries, and you know it's uh, a little pricey, thirty five dollars if you order from the site. So you, I, you know, I guess we I give it my endorsement, but the fact that I think it is a little pricey, I think they could for a hundred and one minute documentary, which has a little bit of extras on it. They could probably have gone for a slightly lower price these days. Pricing on Blu-rays is pretty competitive, and I think they probn probably could have gone maybe with $25, and that would have probably been a little bit better. But 
certainly if you're a Hammer fan, it's something you want to have in your collection. It's uh, some good interviews that happen on it uh, with some of the, the people involved and ham- uh, some of the uh, authors and historians. So, Plus there's some unseen footage and all around a, a well-made documentary. I concur. I enjoyed it very much and well worth the money to me. I know we're not going to go into detail, but just a couple of facts that I pulled that I thought were interesting and to give you a little taste of what you can learn. They they frame the whole, uh, this period in Hammer's time by sort of, I guess the, the ongoing thing would really be the eventual demise of Hammer, but they talk a lot about how things changed when their relationship started and when it ended. And for example, and this really hit home for some reason, in 1965, the number one movie was The Sound of Music. Not even 10 years later, the number one movie was The Exorcist. So that shows you just how audience tastes had changed in such a short time. And that is, we've talked about before, and that's probably one of the main talking points, is that's what happened to Hammer. The world was changing, and they weren't quite sure how to deal with it. Well, I mean, yeah, we've talked about how the the horror genre really goes through a flux between 68 and... 73, 74, between Night of the Living Dead and The Exorcist. And yeah, Hammer was caught smack dab in the middle of that, which is this time period. Things get a little bit gorier. Uh, there's less clothing on some of the main you know, stars. Kind of experimenting with some different things. And, uh, you know, for better or for worse, you know, some of these films, uh, we, we kept getting Dracula films. We kept getting Frankenstein films. Uh I guess we got one mummy film in the midst of that 71. Uh, was it Blood of the Mummy's Tomb? In any case, you know, there was. they were also doing some other non-Gothic horror. They were doing some more contemporary horror as well. Some of it's not as good as some of the earlier output, but it's Hammer. Come on, it's, it's still good. Even a bad Hammer film, in my mind, is a good movie. And there's a lot about, just if you're interested in filmmaking and distribution and the deals that have to be made there's there's a lot of that in there that, that i found very interesting also want to mention briefly there is a bonus feature on it called hammer's lost worlds this wasn't yeah. necessarily a revelation to me i seem to be very aware of a lot of the hammer movies that were never made but this is a an interesting little feature all about that and there's a couple things i didn't know uh, perhaps the well i had seen that there had been a movie called Victim of His Imagination. I have a Hammer book and it has a poster from that, but it doesn't really say what it's about. The This bonus feature reveals that was actually going to be a uh, biography of Bram Stoker. And they were thinking of using Shane Bryant to play Bram Stoker, which doesn't seem like necessarily a good fit, but that I think would have been a very interesting movie had it been made. Yeah, I forgot about that documentary that or the, the extra. That's actually a fun little extra. And yeah, if, if you done any hammer research it's not really anything you probably haven't heard a lot of but it's it's nicely put together talking about what could have been what probably exists on earth too somewhere (laughs) i think it's a great purchase i think it's a must-have if you're a hammer fan and even if you're more casual i think you'll be entertained and it's educational so i definitely recommend that there's a truck in the background and we do have the window open, and I'm just thinking there there might be some background sound. It's a beautiful day here in Kansas City, beautiful fall day. But if you hear any random trucks in the background, we apologize up front. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> no, that gives that makes us very authentic. You know? It does, it's like you're here. Yes, exactly. Let's get into it now. When we were going to talk about these three, I naturally thought we'd sort of somewhere along the way kind of rank them, even though they really are all top notch, and it's kind of hard depending on the day to say what you like, but. 
As I mentioned earlier, our friend Steve Turek, he, he sent us sort of a challenge, maybe. He, he's thinking about, he's going outside the box. He's thinking of a way we can evaluate these movies and perhaps assign some uh, rankings or favoritism to them. So let's listen to his message real quick, come back, and then talk about the three movies. Hi, Rich. Hi, Jeff. This is Steve Turk. I'm contacting you guys about the movies you're going to be doing this month. I'm intrigued because you got basically Curse of Frankenstein, Horror of Dracula, and the 1959 version of The Mummy, all starting starring Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee. Um, you can call these two the heavyweights of Hammer Horror, and this these three movies are what established them and sent them in the stardom for all this monster movie fans. I mean, you really can't get much better than this. And I was thinking, in my opinion, all these movies are 10 out of 10s. So how can I give feedback that would be different than I've done before? And I thought, heavyweights of Hammer Horror. Heavyweights. In one corner, we have Peter Hans Cushing. In the other corner, we have Christopher, I don't need no stinking lines, Lee. And they're going to do a head-to-head battle, one round, one movie each, to decide who is the number one hammer horror icon. Is it Lee? Is it Cushing? Because everybody has that internal debate about which one of these two is the best. So I figured, why not? I'll rate each, go over each movie and to give you my opinion about who I think on my fight card won that movie or that round. Obviously, it's an odd number, so we're going to have a definitive winner uh, at the end. And hopefully you two guys will play along with your um, card and decide who's going to be the winner of each movie and come up with a definitive answer. There are no ties allowed. We want a definitive answer. All right. Give you guys more feedback when I get to the finished on watching The Curse of Frankenstein. Goodbye. More than a hundred years ago, in a mountain village in Switzerland, lived a man whose strange experiments with the dead have since become a legend. A legend that is still told with horror the world over. We've only just started, just opened the door. Look, now's the time to go through that door and find what lies beyond it. But don't you see, Paul? We've discovered the source of life itself, and we've used it to restore a creature that was dead. This is Frankenstein, who revolted against nature, who experimented with the devil and was forever cursed. His unwilling collaborator was Paul Kremp. I can't prove the murder. But I can stop you using his brain. Why? He has no further use for it. Only two women ever entered this house of evil. Elizabeth, come back! Elizabeth, the lovely cousin who had promised to marry him, and Justine, the maid, who kept passionate and secret rendezvous with her master. Won't you understand you're in real danger? What Victor is doing is dangerous to everyone in the house. Possibly conceive what dreadful thing he's planning to do. What are you trying to tell me, Paul? That Victor's wicked? Insane? Wicked? Insane? Evil? Call Frankenstein what you will. A demon had made a man made monster. And now, 
the monster was the master. Oh, what are you going to do? For your sake and to protect Elizabeth, I've so far kept silent. But now I shall go to the authorities and have them destroy that creature. And see that you pay for these atrocities. No! Thank you, Steve, for for that interesting little battle of the contenders for the Hammer World Heavyweight Championship. So let me just be clear. We're supposed to pick within each movie if we think Cushing or Lee is the winner. Right. Okay. Right. That's, I think that's that's what we're going to go with here. So, so let's just dive in. Curse of Frankenstein, 1957. Starting off, it, obviously this is not the first Hammer film, but it's, I think, the start of the gothic hammer era we you, you had sci-fi we even had some horror films before this but this was this turned it up a notch you know now we've got color this establishes that wonderful hammer blood and it and it brings peter cushing and christopher lee together in a way that they hadn't been before they had been in a film before i believe one or two films before but they had never actually had scenes together so this was their first film really together the first of many, many over the next 15 years. Well, gosh, what? No more longer than that. Uh, more than 20 years, if you count the uh, House of the Long Shadows. House of the Dark Shadows? House Long of the Shadows. Long Shadows. Yeah, not, oh, there, there's our Dark Shadows <laughs> reference for oh, the episode. Oh, don't worry. We have another one later. Uh, oh, don't worry. I've got plenty of Doctor <laughs> Who for you, too. And, I'm, and I've got a Star Trek reference. I had to dig deep, and it's a... <laughs> You know, was it the seven degrees of Kevin Bacon or something? But we'll make that happen. Curse of Frankenstein. Peter Cushing stars as Victor Frankenstein. Not officially a doctor in this. Mad scientist? Absolutely. But he's not officially a doctor. You've got Hazel Court playing the lovely Elizabeth in what would be, I believe... One of only... Well, is it her only Hammer? I think this is her only Hammer film. Uh... And actually, you think Hazel Court did more horror movies than she did. She did a lot of TV work, too. A lot of people, of course, associate her with Vincent Price and because uh, she was in The Raven and Mask of the Red Death. She was in Dr. Blood's Coffin. I don't think she was in another Hammer film. Uh, I think this is unique. Now, here's a name. I'm going to butcher this, and I'm sure somebody out there knows the correct pronunciation, but I'm horrible at names. Robert Urquhart? Uh, I, yeah, I've always thought... <laughs> I thought oh, I don't know how to do the. I've always done er. I've started it with an er. Er, er, I don't know. Urquhart, Urquhart. I don't know. Urkel, Urkel, Urkel. Wait a minute. Uh, Did I do that? <laughs> Paul Kemp is his character name. Of course, he's a familiar face, but I was trying to figure out where I'd seen him, and I don't know. He was in the Avengers. He was in an episode of the Hammer House of Horror series. Did lots of TV work, but. Nothing that stood out in my mind. So maybe it's just I've seen this movie so many times that he just kind of stands out. I actually would have loved to see him pop up again in another film or even the sequel. I really liked him for some reason in this movie. And, of course, Christopher Lee playing the creature. Music by James Bernard, who I know did other work for Hammer. Uh, Oh, yes, definitely. (laughs) Of course, a couple of names that that everyone knows. Uh, Jimmy Sangster doing the screenplay. 
and they gave credit to Mary Shelley for providing the original source material, and of course, directed by Terrence Fisher, who is very closely affiliated with numerous Hammer films. You've got all the elements for a classic, and that's exactly what we're given in this uh, in this film, which keeps, for the most part, the 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 main plot of of the story, or as we've seen it, most likely, you know, countless times in films. The biggest difference is that Victor Frankenstein, we see him as a young man, and Paul Kemp, this new new character, comes in as his mentor and quickly becomes kind of like a glorified assistant as Victor surpasses him in knowledge and becomes the mad scientist in this pursuit to create a, a creature and bringing it to life. There's a lot of elements that you might see as, as familiar to previous incarnations, a little bit of Universal, but... Again, Universal was pretty tight with the you know with their what they felt was their property. So Hammer decided to kind of take things in a different direction. The, the look of the creature is vastly different than what we had seen before, but probably more realistic. Uh, in all honesty, and with Cushing and Lee, I mean they do obviously share scenes in this film. Uh, this first time, as I said, that they had that answering that top question. You know, who comes out on top, Cushing or Lee? I'm going to say this is Peter Cushing's film. Uh, Christopher Lee obviously has a smaller role. He plays the creature well, but I, you know, a bit of, I, you know, I'm going to stir up the nest here. <laughs> if you want to take Christopher Lee's portrayal of the creature and compare it to Boris Karloff's in Frankenstein, Boris Karloff's going to knock it out of the park because he had a bigger role. Christopher Lee's role was was the creature's role was very much secondary to Peter Cushing's Frankenstein and I think that's indicative of what this series would be. The series is not so much based on the creature or creatures or creations because we would get someone new every film. It's more about Victor Frankenstein and it's his story and the focus is on the creator as opposed to the creation which makes it vastly different than what Universal gave us in the 30s and 40s. Yeah, he's and he's a good character too and it, I can't help but think of his appearances in the later Hammer films and his sort of development as a character and I know in one of the later ones Frankenstein must be destroyed there was that scene that the studio forced to put in that was sort of a rape scene and I know everyone didn't like it and they thought it shouldn't be there but I think there's seeds of that actually in this movie, and I had forgotten that about this movie, that he is, even though he's getting ready to marry Elizabeth, he's having an affair with the maid. Yeah. And he treats her horribly. Uh, he makes promises to her. She asks something about them being married, and he goes, well, what makes you think that? She said, because you promised me. And then later, Justine is the maid's name. She is pregnant. And... We don't really know that it's Frankenstein's. I mean, that's sort of hinted at. But his reaction to her is that that baby could be any man's in the village. So he's cold. Um, he's heartless. He will use women. I, I just think that's a little a minor seed that will pay off later in the series. And that, that shows how fine Peter Cushing is at sort of walking the line. Because he is a very dapper, nice gentleman, very polite but yet he's got this mean streak, and there is nothing more important to him than this experiment, and he says that in the movie. He'll sacrifice anything to see his experiment come through. 
Peter Cushing is always the the guy that you love, right? But when he's evil, he he's he does it so well. I think out of all these films, the only time that you really, as you said, that that scene and, and Frankenstein must be destroyed. That's the one time that you're really like, okay, that's you're crossing a line there. I can love Cushing and all his evilness and all the other films because he just does it so well with a smile on his face and does it with such elegant English charm. Frankenstein Must Be Destroyed is the only time that it really crossed the line for me. And Cushing did not, I mean, everyone knows about that. Cushing did not like that, the way it was just brought into the 11th hour. Oh, you know what? That is something that they talked about in the documentary. Yes, and yeah. You know, I had always heard that, and I had always thought it's because the nature of that scene they didn't like. But they actually talked about how it it may not have been so much that. It was the fact that they were given it in, in such a short amount of time, and they had done so many other scenes. Had they known it was coming, their performances in the other scenes would have been different. You know, they yeah. would have been in the context. And I had never thought about it that way, that, yes, it's an ugly scene that that maybe is out of character, but had they known in advance it may have meshed better and come across better than it did. Well, they do talk about the, the nudity aspect of it because it was Veronica Carlson, correct? Was yes. in that, And she, that was not something she was going to do. And she does talk about how Peter Cushing does things a certain way to make sure that, because the director wanted it and she wasn't going to allow it. And Peter Cushing helped her through what was a very rough scene to begin with to try to make her, you know, put her at ease and stuff. And that's just Peter Cushing, right? He's just one of those people, I think we both agree, is like when you you talk about actors or actresses from the past that would be at the top of your list of people you would just do anything to meet, Peter Cushing is one of those. I, I think that would be one of those amazing experiences. Even if it was a fleeting autograph, I think you would have that. Even if it's a 10-second interaction it would be enough for you to walk away with a smile on your face. He's just that type of person. As I said, when he does evil, you still love him because he's he's so good and he just has that certain way of doing it that, okay, yeah, you're really a bad guy, but I still love you for it. Yeah, and a little bit of tangent there, but you know, back to Curse of Frankenstein, the very genesis of this character. I made a couple other notes about just to indicate the the evil. So first of all, there's no like Igor character or assistant really in this. Uh, he does it himself. He'll go and chop somebody down that's hanging and, and get the body parts. He obtains them all himself. He brings a body back. They take down a, a highwayman and they cut off his head. And Peter Cushing's just like, take off the head. It's of no use to me anyway, and drops it into a, a vat of acid. So nonchalant. When Elizabeth arrives, he's more excited to show Paul the hands that he just obtained for the body than yes. he is to welcome her. Yes. I thought that that was deliciously funny and, and evil. Well, they were hands of a sculptor, you know, so they were special. Yes, we'll see you at dinner. You know, <laughs> Paul, please come here. <laughs> and then when uh, the honeymoon night, you know, he, they walk in the house. Of course, he doesn't care over the threshold or anything, but he immediately has work to do. And Elizabeth's not too happy. And he says, come on, we're not sentimental young lovers. That's the kind of character he is and that he's just excellent at delivering all that. I want to talk for a minute about sort of the look of the movie. And you hear a lot about like the early days of Hammer and the style of Hammer. And when you watch the three movies we watched, you get a very clear idea of what that style is. When you look at the later movies, you see how they did stray from that original style. But these movies are beautiful. The artistry involved in them, you really notice. 
the first thing I noticed about Curse of Frankenstein was this beautiful matte painting that was oh, yeah. behind there. And yeah, it may not look 100% real, but it's just, it's beautiful. And it works so well at setting the, the stage for what's going to happen. The sets, you know, are so packed and they're so full but yet that camera is still able to move around like the lab seemed very small and claustrophobic but the camera weaves in and out of there and it well there's just so well done yeah there's so much to look at when you're watching even as i was watching this film i i you know have it on the original snapcase dvd has it been released on blu-ray I don't, I, I don't think this one has. Not in the, Well, it's over in the UK. It's out on Blu-ray. I don't think here in the States. And actually, I think the Snapcase is actually out of print right now. When I did a quick search on Amazon, I don't think it's available, not at a reasonable price. So that's mind-boggling how this movie is not available. But again, Hammer is problematic at best with their home releases here in the States. But even after so many viewings, there's still things that you can just see in some of the details in the background. And that, I don't think that's something that Hammer did in the later years as well. They were cranking out films at that point, just trying to turn a buck. In this particular era, the late 50s, early 60s, up till about the mid-60s, I think, is when Hammer was, was really at its best. And you begin to see a few more other films being just cranked out by the time you get to the mid to late 60s, and then it really gets you know out of hand in the 70s. This time period's golden, and Curse of Frankenstein is just a beautiful film uh, to look at. And its sequel, Revenge of Frankenstein, I think not as good visually, but still is, is a wonderful film. And they go hand in hand. You can watch both films. It's really one long film, because it's the only time that we get a direct sequel, you know, Peter Cushing coming back as, as Victor Frankenstein and picks up on the events, literally where Curse of Frankenstein leaves off, which in itself is not a cliffhanger, but by the time in the second film, you, you see, well, no, nope, what you saw wasn't exactly what you saw because Victor Frankenstein, spoiler alert, survives <laughs> and comes back in the next film. If you needed that, there's your spoiler alert. Yeah, I love that framing device of the the beginning and the ending of that story. And yeah, that's great. I do want to say real quick, uh, as I'm looking at my notes here, this was actually one of two films that Hazel Court did for for Hammer. The other one being The Man Who Cheated Death. But that was the only two that she did for Hammer. And and one of only, really, like I said, I I think she only did five or six horror films. So she kind of carved a little niche, but not as deep as, as you might think, really. I know what I was going to say about the the camera work and the way the camera moves. I believe this is possibly one of my favorite hammer scenes ever, and that's the reveal of Christopher Lee as the, the oh, creature. Yeah. The way the camera zooms in at the very same time he's reaching up and pulling the bandages off his face, and then the camera freezes on that horrible, grotesque face, and it is very shocking. And at the time, I can only imagine what people would have thought of that. But the whole the flow, the way that moves... Just, just one of my favorite scenes ever. I think out of all the Hammer Frankenstein films, it's probably this the the only other one really I'm thinking of would be Frankenstein and the Monster from Hell, which is you get a pretty horrific monster in that. This is is better. It's better work. The makeup design was by Philip Leakey, which was actually last minute. Uh, they were going to go with something else and ended up going with this. That ended up being literally the day before filming started, they finalized the look. So it's, uh, and as I believe, I think I read somewhere, uh, if I'm confusing this with something else, but that 
was it was it hazel cord she did not she didn't know what it was going to look like was that or am i thinking something else oh that sounds familiar but i'm not sure i don't know i, I i'm not going to commit to that but in any case it was definitely very 11th hour uh that they came up with a look and pretty darn good 11th hour as far as i'm concerned a very iconic look very different than i think I guess maybe similar a little bit to I Was a Teenage Frankenstein, kind of, sort of, done better, done in color, but that kind of same similar horrifically scarred face, which we really, again, vastly different than what the universal version of the monster was. And it only goes from bad to worse for that poor guy. He, Paul, who develops from being the mentor to Frankenstein to really being the good conscience to his bad conscience, shoots the monster in the face, and that's a terrific shot of blood where he grabs his forehead and blood comes out. But then Frankenstein thinks that he can then do brain surgery to try to, <laughs> you know, save him. So they shave half his head, yeah. and there's a scene where you see him, and it really, uh, it, it, I reacted to it in a, a strange way. I mean, yes, it was this horrific monster, but yet at that point I felt deeply, deeply sorry for him, for that poor oh, guy absolutely. that he was going through that. Absolutely. Uh, you, you Very much like Karloff's version is that you, there's sympathy for the monster because he didn't ask for any of this and, and not as, as in-depth as we get with Karloff's version, but you can't help but feel sorry for him. Even you know when things get out of control at the end of the film, it's, like it, it's, it's very much the tale of the monster. He didn't ask for this. This is the world that he was given... And what he what he's doing is really not his own fault. I like to think this was a purposeful tribute to the Universal movie. There is a scene, uh, and if you remember, of course, in Frankenstein, Little Maria by the lake. That, yes. Well, here we have a little boy by the lake, yeah. and you sort of think, oh, you know, they're going to recreate this scene. Well, it's combined with what I would like to think is a scene out of Bride of Frankenstein with a blind man. The blind man brings the little boy to the lake. And in sort of a twist, the little boy doesn't go in the lake, but the blind man has a scuffle with the creature and ends up getting killed. So It had to be. Yeah. I, I, I loved that. That, that. I thought that was great. And then just my last thing, kind of summing up, as we talk about these three movies, I think that they get better. Each one. You know, I think Horror I of Dracula's better. I don't always think The Mummy is better, but this viewing I did. So there's some flaws here. I mean, not bad, but I don't particularly like the ending. It's kind of, well, not the very ending, but the creature ending, you know, yes, yeah. up on the roof, carrying up the damsel in distress. That seemed kind of, eh, I don't know. We've kind of seen that before. There's a couple little minor, minor clunky parts. I mean, I love the movie, but, you know, if you're watching the three, I I definitely think this is the lesser of the three. I would I would agree. I mean, which when Curse of Frankenstein's the lesser of the three, you know, you've got a oh, pretty yes. darn good movie. So I would agree. I know a lot of people don't like The Mummy as well because I've, I've read that. When we get ready to talk about that, yeah, I have always had a special love for The Mummy. And for me, some of it, I believe, is the music. And there's just some great music that was done in that. You know, James Bernard did the music for this one. He does not do it for The Mummy, but he did do it for this in Horror of Dracula. And you can definitely tell the similar styles in both movies. The Mummy's very unique. And it needs to be, because it's a slightly different type of film. It's a different setting. I think that oftentimes music 
can make or break a film, and and that's a big factor that the Mummy has going for. But again, no nothing against James Menard because the music in this film is amazing as well. I always forget how much I like the Mummy until I watch it. So it's one maybe that doesn't stay with me as long as Skirts of Frankenstein or or of Dracula, but I do think technically it's a better movie. And, but we'll we'll talk about it when we get there. Uh, and just real quick, I'm with you on Cushing. I think Cushing wins in this uh, battle between him and Lee. It's it's definitely his movie. I, I want to throw in some some little tidbits here, going back to Terrence Fisher and, and Jimmy Sangster. So Jimmy Sangster, prior to this movie, had written X the Unknown, but this would really kind of cement him in the world of Hammer films. And he would eventually do at least 18 Hammer films that he would be involved in. And he actually directed three films, which I did not know. So you learn something after all this time. Now, were they the best? Unfortunately not. But he directed Horror of Frankenstein, which was their departure from the world of Peter Cushing. Uh, and is a, believe it or not, a film I have not seen. I have it. I've had it for a while. I've never seen it. It's one of the few Hammer films that I still have to watch. Lust for a Vampire and Fear in the Night being the others. With Terrence Fisher, he had directed, obviously, uh, some work prior to this, including the Hammer film Four-Sided Triangle, which was early 1950s sci-fi period of Hammer, which I, I enjoy. Uh, not as good as their gothic horror, but enjoyable. But again, this would really cement him in the world of Hammer. He did uh, eventually 16 more films, at least, I believe, Plus other, uh, a couple of other horror classics, uh, Island of Terror and The Gorgon. You know, when you look at some of these ages of some of these people, you know, and when we lost them, we actually lost him quite a long time ago. He died at the age of 76 in 1980. Uh, he was older than uh, many of his contemporaries uh, while making this film. Another little fun little tidbit is uh, the fact that Christopher Lee was not the first choice for the creature. Uh, actor by the name of Bernard Breslau was originally considered for the role because of his height. He was six foot seven. Christopher Lee was only six foot five. But Lee had a, had a lesser fee. He was only he was actually paid two pounds less, and that's what his I guess he was charging. But that's what the going rate for Christopher Lee was at that point, and it was two pounds less than Bernard Breslau, so they went with the cheaper of the two. This is where I'm going to start segueing into my Doctor Who, uh, and I've got plenty of them. These are British, British films, films, right? Yeah. So, uh, can I say one thing about Lee before Absolutely. you go on? Absolutely, yes. So yes. We, he got we kind of were giving him short shift there, praising Cushing. But if you think about it, it, you know Christopher Lee was the creature. Think, take any of the other Hammer Frankenstein movies, and yes, we probably know who was the creature. But are any of them as iconic as Lee? Oh, absolutely I, not. I, yeah. I believe that had another actor played him, he would not have gone on to achieve the things that Christopher Lee. And you may think, well, he, you know, he's only not on screen very much. He's in makeup, you know, what kind of performance. But when he gets to the mummy, we'll talk more about that. I believe that Lee brings enough to that character that to make it iconic. I don't believe any actor could have done that. I agree. I, I agree within... You know, a, a two-year period of time, he did three amazing films, which prior to this, Christopher Lee was, was a younger man. He, you know, around this time period, he actually did a, a film, I think it's Quarters of Blood with Boris Karloff. 
these are the films that that cemented him and set in course a, a for the rest of his life a very prolific career in film not just in horror which he's of course closely associated with but in films in general and, and this was a turning point for him having this role followed by dracula followed by the mummy gave him a tremendous amount of press and and set the rest of his life on an incredible course uh, right up into the fact that don't know if i've got the note it might be somewhere else in my notes here but he's actually still has one film that hasn't been released and we lost him uh what, 2016? Yeah, it was not that terribly long ago. I, I believe so. So, uh, yeah, the fact that he still has another film that hasn't been released is amazing. That does happen sometimes. Films get kind of lost in the muck and mire of post-production. Going back to, to so Bernard Breslau, I don't know, his career certainly was not the same as, as Christopher Lee's, but... He does have a little bit of a Doctor Who footnote because of his height. Now, is it fair to make a Doctor Who connection to somebody that actually wasn't in the movie? <laughs> oh, I've, I've got more Doctor okay, Who references. Okay. I've got more. But my first two were not in the movie. <laughs> they could have been or should have been. You're right. Bernard Breslau played an Ice Warrior, uh, which is one of the kind of secondary big bad villains in Doctor Who in uh, 1967's uh, the Ice Warriors, and then he played... He does have a kind of an interesting horror sci-fi fantasy footnote. He was the Cyclops in Crawl, and I did not know that. Hmm. If you had HBO in the 1980s, you had to see Crawl because it was on like every afternoon. Now, another almost in the movie Doctor Who reference is the second Doctor, Patrick Troughton, who was in, of course, other Hammer films. He was originally supposed to play a mortuary attendant, and there's even some stills, but it was a deleted scene. It got cut, but he is in some early production releases that apparently he was supposed to be in it, but didn't make it the final cut. Now, the big Doctor Who reference is, of course, Peter Cushing. He played the Doctor in two films, Doctor Who and the Daleks in 1965, and Daleks Invasion Earth 2150 AD in 1966. He plays a different version, the Earth 2 version of the Doctor. It doesn't tie directly into the television series. Uh, he plays a bit more of a eccentric scientist type. But some of the familiar things are there. The TARDIS is there. The Daleks are there. Familiar characters. The two movies are based on, on episodes of Doctor Who from the first and second season. But they did make some tweaks and stuff. But they're fun films. Fun music, and there at the time, of course, an opportunity to see Doctor Who in color, which wouldn't happen until 1970. So, kind of a fun little footnote in Doctor Who history. Uh, not officially part of the main storyline, but kind of again existing in this other world. And Peter Cushing is almost unrecognizable at times. I mean, he had, he had some different a different look and a different way of acting in those movies. That's very eccentric and different than how he would normally portray a character in his film. So if you want to see a slightly different take uh, from Peter Cushing, check out those Doctor Who films. Um, I know they were released on, on DVD and Blu-ray at one point. I don't know what their availability is now, but they're, they're fun to check out. Uh, it gives you a taste of Doctor Who in any case. So there you go. That's the first of a few more that I've got coming. But Would we ever consider talking about those? You know, I've never seen them. They're fun. Yeah. They're, I, and they're, I didn't ever propose it earlier because we went through a rash where several other podcasts talked about them. I don't know if you heard that. I know, I did, I know yeah, Rod yeah. Barnett. But maybe next year sometime, I wouldn't mind doing that for an episode. I, that, would be, that would be fun. That would be a good way for 
as you know, you've given me a taste of Dark Shadows, it'd be a fun way to give a taste of Doctor Who. And they're pretty good. You know, there's a few minor changes, more so in the second film than the first, but they are pretty good adaptations of Doctor Who stories, and definitely like the Daleks are, are a lot of fun to see them in color, and it's fun to see, you know, Cushing and, and such, and uh, they're fun films. I would love to do that, yeah. Anything else about The Curse of Frankenstein? I believe that's that's all I've got to all say right, about so that. we both are in agreement on Cushing. Let's hear... Uh, if Steve agrees with us or if he goes with Lee on this one. Hello, gentlemen. This is Steve back again. Um, just got done watching The Curse of Frankenstein, and I want to tell you who, how I felt round one went. Wish I had a little one of those bells or whatever, just like to do in the fights. But, oh, well, I got a low budget. Uh, what I liked or loved about this movie, Peter Cushing's version of Victor Frankenstein. I mean, it is just wonderful how he portrays Victor Frankenstein as this evil person, this self-absorbed, do-anything-for-science type individual. It's so different than the universal versions of Victor Frankenstein, in my opinion. It's the best version of Victor Frankenstein that I've ever seen up to this point in my life, and it's really going to take something in order to knock Peter Cushing off of that pedestal. Of, as the victor, as the best Victor Frankenstein, Christopher Lee, of course, played the creature or the monster, whichever way you want to word it. And again, he, he's excellent. He's one of the best suit actors that there's ever been in movie history. But having said that, I don't think he was better as the monster or the creature than Boris Karloff. Um, so I'd have to put him down just a little bit. I still think Carlos was the best version that I've seen so far. And again, there's all these things are like like anything are subject to debate, which is what we love about movies. I enjoyed the supporting cast. I enjoyed the um, the guy who played Paul Robert. I cannot pronounce his last name, but you guys probably can so much better than I. I like how he was supporting. Um, Victor to start with and then of course when he saw where Victor was taking it he eventually couldn't stomach it anymore his conscience couldn't let him do it anymore and he totally turned on him especially that turn at the end of the movie which was so enjoyable and of course I loved Valerie Gaunt who played um, the maid in the movie and uh, I just felt that she did a very good job of showing also the different sides or the bad side of Peter Cushing's character, and that a cad that he is. And really, the other supporting characters did a fine job, but those two just stuck out to me as being better than the rest. The monster makeup for the creature, um, obviously, for anybody, I can just imagine if somebody was going to see those movies only having seen the Universal version, how much of a change-up that had to have been, especially being in color, and everything, and um, it's just it's just wonderful. And I like how they sped up the film to do the, the unveiling when he takes the bandages off. Again, excellent work. The sets, the music were all top-notch. I mean, really, it's just Hammer starting to show off how they can do that gothic movies in the, in the, the color tradition with these iconic characters and put their own spin on it and really show how things are gonna be going into the future. As for um, looking at my fight card, 
for this round, I'd say hands down, it goes to Cushing. He came out. He showed why he's hands Cushing. He was jabbing. He was bobbing. He was weaving. And um, I think he left Lee um, hurting a little bit there. But we'll have to see how round two goes when we get to the horror of Dracula. Talk to you guys soon. This is the story of Dracula, a creature who destroys all whom he touches. Dracula the terrifying, the feared, who sleeps in the tombs of the dead by day and arises at night to inflict his terror upon the innocent and the unsuspecting. You must help me. You must. You're my only hope. You must. I'll help you. I promise. try and understand. This is not Lucy, the sister you loved. It's only a shell, possessed and corrupted by the evil of Dracula. How do you destroy a fiend who has so far proven himself indestructible? Those who come to end his reign of terror stay to become his victims. Castle Dracula is summoned here in Klausenburg. Will you tell me how I get there? You ordered a meal, sir. As an innkeeper, it's my duty to serve you. When you've eaten, I ask you to go and leave us in peace. This is the doctor who dares to challenge the vampire Dracula. This is the anguished man who fears for the lives of his beloved, the girl who is his sister, and the one that is his wife. Dracula, the bedeviled master of all that is evil. later 1958 and it's time to get an adaptation of dracula now the film of course has two titles in the uk it was known as dracula but here in the states it's known as horror of dracula and that's how i guess we'll refer to it as and the main reason for that is that they were worried about the confusion with bella lugosi's <laughs> dracula which had just been re-released in theaters and was also part of the shock theater package which was being released to television at this time. For some reason, they thought people would get the two confused. They threw on the title Horror of Dracula, and that's still how it's known here in the States. But, you know, tomato, tomato, uh, you've got Christopher Lee uh, taking on, not the lead role, I don't think, even though it's Horror of Dracula, would you consider him a lead? He's got less screen time than just about everybody else in the film. Yeah, and Cushing's name is above the title, as they say he... Peter Cushing in Horror of Dracula, and then all the other stars, including Lee. He is Count Dracula, giving us a his own unique take that we would see countless other films over the course of the next 15 years or so. 15? Yeah, I guess 15. And of course, Peter Cushing giving the first of an eventual four 
film appearances as uh, Van Helsing. This particular version would be seen uh, in another film. We'll talk about that. And then he did play an ancestor or a descendant of Van Helsing, rather, uh, in the early 1970s. And I don't know if he played Van Helsing again in any other film. I don't think he did. I'm, if I'm missing something, I apologize. You've got Michael Goff? Gow? How was that? Uh, I've heard it. Guff. I know the GH is an F. Okay. So, again, let's just butcher some more names. <laughs> He These played. aren't even complicated names. No, I mean, they're, not, they're just not foreign or anything. I'm right? just horrible at names. <laughs> so he plays Arthur Holmwood. Now, he's actually a very familiar face. For contemporary followers of films, he was Alfred in the four Batman films in the 80s and 90s. But he's got a lot of legitimate horror uh, credit back in the day. Horrors of the Black Museum, Conga, Dr. Terror's House of Horrors, The Skull... Oh, and did you know he appeared in two episodes of Doctor Who? Really? Yes, That's he did. fascinating. He played the Celestial Toymaker. Sadly, it's a four-part story. Three of the four episodes no longer exist, so we don't get a lot of, of him visually, but he played a kind of a... You know, he's the villain of the piece, a very unique villain in kind of another dimension. He also appeared later on in the 1980s in a uh, story called Ark of Infinity. Well, I guess he, he lived to be 94. He died in 2011. You've got Melissa Stribling playing the character of Mina, which might not be the way you remember Mina. So you've got a lot of different characters getting twisted and turned around in this film. She appeared in, in uh, Journey to the Unknown, The Avengers, The New Avengers, lots of TV work. Carol Marsh, who appears as Lucy. Again, might not be the Lucy that you remember. And Yanina Faye playing the young character of Tanya. Basically, the, the gang is back together again. James Bernard doing music, Jimmy Sangster doing the screenplay, and Terrence Fisher directing The Horror of Dracula. Because this is Dracula, are you going with Lee in this as the, the battle? This is the tougher of the three films for me, because the other two, in my mind, are very clearly defined. This one, both give such a good performance. I'm going to go with a tie. Oh, didn't Steve say no ties? Uh, can I do I don't know. Well, here, well, while you're thinking about it, let me say, and this may surprise you, but I don't even hesitate. I go with Cushing again. And I'll tell you why. He owns this movie. It's a very... I call this the action version of Dracula. It's it's very well paced. I love the construction of the movie. You can divide it evenly into thirds. You always talk about the first third, the last third, and that's just like a general way that movies go. But there, there you know, there is almost to the minute an even third. They're first in you know Dracula's castle, and then they're back home, and then they're back. I, I just love the way the story's built and the way it's written. But back to Cushing. The, the climax is one of my favorite endings of any Hammer movie, and I think we're probably all familiar. Cushing leaps up on the, oh. the table, runs down, yeah. jumps up, pulls the curtain so that the sun will come in, runs back, grabs two candlesticks to form a cross, and holds them in front of Lee. I mean, that's great, but that's that's what I remembered. But if you watch, he's being athletic through the whole movie. There's a scene earlier where, which, by the way, a really cool 
twist in the story when they wonder how is Dracula getting in because they're standing outside watching and I don't think I'll spoil it but I thought that was a cool little twist yeah. about how he was able to get in but Cushing runs upstairs when um, Gerda screams and he leaps over the the stair railing I mean it's physical yeah. he's active he's moving they didn't want him to do that scene actually I, I read that where uh, they were worried about from a you know insurance perspective and you don't want someone to get hurt on the set but he insisted on doing that and I think I'm so glad that he did because that's that is a, an amazing scene in the film yeah it's a distinctive characteristic for someone playing Van Helsing and that just goes to his overall character I mean and to think that you know a vampire hunter is not just an old man who carries a doctor's bag with a cross and holy water in it you know you can see this guy out actively hunting vampires and battling them and yes. being very athletic so i just i i don't know i think it's cushing's movie i like that and he's not the only one that's athletic i mean the whole movie dracula does it too he leaps over a table when um the his bride at the castle is biting jonathan harker and just a very action-packed movie it, it moves quickly and there's a lot going on yeah that, I, I would have to think now you, you gave a good argument there and, and i i think about the screen time that cushing has to lee's and, and lee is only on camera for seven minutes of a roughly 80 minute film they're amazing seven minutes but cushing does own this film and more i think about it i i would agree it Cushing is is got a much better role in this film or more substantial role. You know, we do finally, you know, we don't always hear him speak as Dracula in his films. It's interesting though, he only speaks to one character in this movie and that's Jonathan Harker. He doesn't speak to anybody else. Huh. And the rest of it, he doesn't speak to Cushing. There's there's fighting and scenes but there's no actual conversation between the two, which I kind of we do get in later films, but I think it would have been kind of fun to get a little bit of, of uh, you know banter between the two of them. I think that would have been fun. But no, you are correct. I, I, I would I would have to vote with Cushing. Cushing does own this film. Christopher Lee has more to do with this film, but Cushing does take it in the end. And they say that this is you know the first time Dracula was like sexy. And I'll be honest, you see the fur his attacks and his and he's definitely a, a force of evil you can sense that but i didn't really get the sexy part until i believe the last time he attacks a, a woman uh which would have been mina i believe there's a very sensual yeah mouth around her face before he moves to her lips and then goes to her wow. neck so I'm that's sure. where i see there's lugosi fans out there that would disagree they there are some who find him very sexy I've never seen that <laughs> aspect, but there are those who believe Lugosi has a certain amount of, of, you know, sexy charm about him. And I guess, you know, we'll just say, okay, you're entitled to your opinion. I don't see it, but I do definitely see it with Christopher Lee. A couple of things that I like also about the plot. I love the device where we learn the rules for the vampire in this yes. movie. And that's that Van Helsing has recorded... I'm not sure why, but he's listening to his recording that he's made where he states the rules. You know, there are, vampires are allergic to light. Sunlight is fatal. They're repelled by the odor of garlic. There's a thing about the crucifix symbolizing the power of good over evil. And it, it protects a normal human being, but it reveals the vampire. So that's really cool that... And a lot of vampire movies do that, and I think especially ones that 
when there's a vampire movie and there hasn't been one in a while, they sort of establish what the ground rules are. What can yeah. this vampire do and not do? Even later, they play on that a little bit because I believe it's Arthur who says, well, I thought vampires could turn into bats and wolves. And Cushing's like, no, that's a common fallacy. So, Well, the reason, of course, was for budgetary concerns. <laughs> Actually, they didn't have the money to, to do that. So there's a lot of things in the story that you don't see. Like you said, I mean, they, there's no bat, there's no wolf. You don't see, uh, or fog, you know, it, you see that in other films. There's no ship scenes. There's there's no Demeter that, that is, is pres present in the film. There's a lot of transference of characters and characters are condensed and blended and mixed up. And a lot of that, again, all kind of stem back to they had a very small budget, so they had to go with what they, they had. They spent money on sets. You got uh, some great sets. And matte paintings, again, all the things yes. we talked about with so, Curse of Frankenstein. And I guess, you know, they, they put the money where it really mattered. You had some amazing sets of Dracula's Castle that I think brought it to life like you've never seen before. Although, again, not taking anything away from, from Universal's Dracula because that is some amazing set as well, which, you know, you wouldn't get in later films. So, yeah, I don't want to take away from that. But... At this time period, you didn't you didn't have you were getting away from some of the grand sets, and even Hammer themselves would, would eventually pull away from that. But in this film, yeah, they visually I, I think gave a, a very unique look to to the castle. We get it's fun to see more of the castle, and I love the fact that they did interchange characters because you get so used to the traditional story, and it had been quite a few years since I've seen Horror of Dracula. I couldn't remember, it was like, well, you know, because I, I watched all three of these with, with my wife, Carla, who is now fully in love with Hammer Films. She Yay, loves Carla. these movies. She, you know, commented on that. She's like, she was getting confused. She says, well, I'm confused. These characters are different. I said, yeah, they, they twisted and turned things around. And it keeps you on your toes a little bit if you're not familiar. Otherwise, if you've seen so many Dracula movies, sometimes you're just, it can be paint by number. And they didn't do that here. They, they took things a little off kilter, which uh, I think enhances the viewing experience because you really kind of have to pay attention a little bit more because it's not just the same old paint-by-number storyline. To the, to the extent that you've got more action and Harker's character is vastly different than what he's portrayed in other films, which I think is fun. Yeah, I think this really is... This is almost... To me, the definitive version of Dracula, it's one I would show someone who's never seen a Dracula movie because it is so good at taking all those elements and making them concise, you know, combining characters. And like I said earlier, it's excellent structure. I think they pulled the right elements, combined them in the right way that it is just a self-contained, really excellent Dracula story. Now, I do have just a couple minor gripes. And the, as many times as I've seen this, I never have noticed these before, and I think only someone that watches it a lot of times will notice. But there were just a couple things with the plot that I like. was, hmm, if Harker, and this is the different thing with him, he's going to be librarian for Dracula, but he really is working with Van Helsing, and he's there to destroy Dracula. So when he sees the woman there, and she pleads with him for help, why... Is he trying to get from her? Well, why? What is he doing to you? You know, he should know that. You would think, if, if if that's why he's there, and you would think that he'd be on his guard a bit more than he is. Yeah, and and I just and why doesn't he just get her out of there right then to save her 
versus play dumb and then you know anyway that bugged me also i wasn't real clear on why dracula went to and i get confused if it was ingolstadt or wherever that the homewoods lived so harker has the picture of lucy on his desk and lee notices it and makes a comment about what a lovely lady that is and then later when van helsing gets to the castle that frame is broken the glass is broken yes. and that picture is out so dracula obviously went because of lucy now do you i wasn't clear on his <laughs> this sounds ridiculous it's a freaking horror movie but what, what was his motivation i mean <laughs> did he have a thing for her did he think she was beautiful and he wanted her the the way they claim in the story is that he's taking revenge because his vampire bride was destroyed in the castle and so he's gone to get revenge on harker by taking lucy that seems a little far-fetched to me and yeah. of course you know maybe the characters are just speculating on that's why he did it but i'm more inclined to believe it was oh there's a hottie i want her for myself what, what do you think or, i would agree am I being he, crazy he showed an interest in her before he loses his his bride there in the castle right well, which is another change because we usually get three brides. We only get one here. But uh, I would agree. Yeah, I mean, it, it seemed to make more sense because he showed an interest before. So I, I don't know why. I guess Cushing wouldn't have known that or Van Helsing would have known it. So his theory is as good as anything. Well, the, And the one last thing on that, when Harker does stake the, the vampire bride, Cushing is in a coffin next to her and these are odd coffins they're like big planters you know they're yeah, big cement and they yeah. don't have a lid they just lay there open but uh harker stabs the woman and it's really cool because it's dracula that reacts you know yes. i like that but then when he's done he goes to dracula's coffin and it's empty dracula comes in from upstairs why did he go out and come in? You know, why didn't he just go so right out? So you have that dramatic <laughs> scene. Yeah, yeah and that's a plot device that doesn't make sense. Yeah, and not to mention that when Harker entered the basement from outside, and then they have the reverse shot of him coming in, it's not outside; it's an interior. Well, shot. and and why he would why he would put down you know the the stake that we like he does is like Harker's not the sharpest tool in the shed. I guess is what we're getting at. There's some inconsistencies. He's sent on a mission, but he was a little ill-prepared, I think. Uh, if you want to pick it apart, uh, he should have done things a little bit better. And I'm sorry, I don't mean to do that. I love this movie. It's an excellent movie. Like I say, these are just little things I noticed, actually, the, for the first time when I watched it. But anybody that watches this for the first time, it's almost a guaranteed sure thing, I believe, that you'll enjoy it. I Like I say, the way it's constructed, the action aspect being fast-moving, I really think it's a definitive Dracula uh, for someone that may have never seen a Dracula. It'd be a good one to watch. There is a direct sequel to this is definitely different in tone. We get Brides of Dracula some two years later where Cushing is back as Van Helsing, but there's no Dracula. Christopher Lee, it would take, what, seven years before he would come back and do another Dracula film, and then he was fairly prolific over the course of the next, you know, nine years or so before he was kind of done with the role, which I think he was done before he was actually done making films. He was kind of bored with the process a little bit and, and ready to move on and i think it would only be in later years that he would really talk about dracula a bit more but even in later years christopher lee wants to be he wanted to be remembered for more than just his horror films 
Brides of Dracula being an, another rare case where we get a direct sequel from Hammer Films, but a, le- a lot less so than where Curse and Revenge uh, for the Frankenstein films have uh, so much in common with each other. Van Helsing is really about the only thing that, that can connect Horror of Dracula and Brides of Dracula. Uh, that film would have been a lot different with Christopher Lee, and it had been a different film altogether. But It's been so long since I've seen that. Does, is Cushing consistent? Is his Van Helsing as athletic and... Uh, it's been a long time for me, too, because that's just not a go-to... It's a good movie, but it it, it it's an odd Dracula film, right? Because there's no Dracula, mm-hmm. so... You're going to go to one of the other Christopher Lee films, I think, before you go to that one. But it's got Peter Cushing. I want to say, though, I don't remember him being as athletic because there's really not a reason a, a to reason be. to be. Yeah, yeah. But still fun. And readily available, too. I think it's part of the Hammer Horror series from Universal. Universal happens to own the rights to that film. And it does pop up from time to time on Sven Gulli. That is, I believe the Hammer Horror series, I think, has been put out on Blu-ray. So uh, you should be able to find that one. Horror of Dracula is also available on DVD. It's been released on Blu-ray, but again, I don't think here in the States. I know that it's got some of the restored scenes, but in the States, you can find it for less than $10. It is also, at one time, was part of a one of those four-movie greatest films series where you got four films pretty much bare bones but you can get three other good dracula films and i think at the time they were less than twenty dollars that's the version i've got again i i don't know if it's in print i think they i think it is but a lot of those have gone out of print too i thought i had the blu-ray and learned that i don't that's one of those that i'm curious if i can even now get and i do have my all region blu-ray player now so i'd like to get that you know nice version so i watched the warner brothers snap case one i did get to see the restored version uh, on the big screen in chicago a couple years ago um that would have been great yeah and you know i think the that the the big thing is the ending the more the scene is longer where his body is decomposing watching this one this time it is minor there was more of that in this version than I remembered. And, Same here, yeah. And yeah. I don't, I was like, oh, well. What's the extra stuff? Exactly. I, I you was know, thinking the same thing. What, yeah. what difference is, you know, another two seconds or something make? I mean, I'm a completist. I would, I always like to see things in their, you know, original version, but I don't think you're missing just watching this, the standard version that you see. And supposedly there's, there's still other elements from the Japanese print that is probably lost forever because I don't think they found a complete print over in Japan. Supposedly there's still some other random cuts or alternate scenes that we may never see. How much it enhances the film, I think it's just one of those things where if you're a completist and you want to see absolutely every scene, but it, it, it really is, it is, as you said, it's minor. And I had the same experience. It's like, I'm, I said, what's cut from this? I was like, I know this isn't the restored version, but... It seems pretty darn complete to me. So it's it is fun. It's graphic. It's a great ending to the film, and and kind of it, yeah, it, you know, Dracula is dead at the end of this film. Spoiler alert! Uh, and it would take him a while before he came back, and then when he does come back, Christopher Lee kind of varies from film to film. Does he talk? Does he not talk? Does he have red eyes? Does he not? 
he, he does start to get a few more powers as the budget gets a little bit higher. We get a bit more from, from him in these other films. I want to say out of all the, the Cushing or the uh, Christopher Lee films, this one's because it's got Peter Cushing and because it's the true Gothic setting, it's by far the best. The others are a lot of fun and it's fun to see them back together in the seventies in a modern day setting, but you're not going to get any better than horror of Dracula. It's, it's by far the best of the series. Speaking of, did you see that Dracula AD 1972 and Satanic Rites of Dracula are coming out on Blu-ray from the Shout Factory? I believe, well, no. Isn't it one of them archive collection, the Warner Archive collection? Oh, yeah, they're both Warner Archive. Sorry. Yes. Yep, 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 yep. I saw that, and it's tempting. I've got a good copy of Dracula AD 1972. In fact, I think it's part of that four-film set. Satanic Rites of Dracula, public domain film, my print is a public domain print. It's tempting to upgrade. Oh man, I'm no thought for me. I'm I'm getting them both. I love those movies, and I know a lot of people don't, but they're an incredible amount of fun. And there they are. They, they are. and they sort of have a, a dark shadows vibe to me. In that the same actors are playing descendants of original character. Well, not Dracula, but Peter Cushing, and I, I just think that's really cool. Upgrading Hammer Films is a rabbit hole because there's I've got a lot of films I want to upgrade, and then if I do one, then I got to do two, then I got to do twenty. So uh, some of my Hammer Films are actually off-air recordings from oh thirteen, fourteen years ago now, and I think we've mentioned this before. It's kind of fun sometimes to see those old Turner classic movie introductions, or some of these I recorded off of Cinemax when they were playing them. So it is kind of fun, you know. And actually, that was the thing. Curse of Frankenstein was a snap case, whereas Revenge of Frankenstein was an off-air recording. And I'll be honest with you, I didn't see that much of a difference. Someday, if they all come out on Blu-ray in a nice box set, and, and you know, which will probably never happen, and I don't have an all-region Blu-ray player, that's another rabbit hole that I have resisted for the longest time. Because yeah, once you do that, then it's like a whole new world opens up to you, and Hammer would be a good reason to go all region because there's a lot of good Blu-ray releases over there. And extras are also different on some of those releases. So uh, if you're going to do it, do it for Hammer and do it for these films. I've been pretty good since I got the all you region have. player. I, I, I heard a lot. Yeah, you, I've, you know, there were a couple I got right away. There is one I just recently ordered. Rod Barnett on The Bloody Pit did Lady Frankenstein. And that's a movie I've never seen. It never looked good to me. I, I didn't want to see it, but they sold me on it, and they sold me on this particular version that came out in England, and uh, it's on the way as we speak. And I was able to get it in the States, so it doesn't have the expensive charge to have it shipped over. I don't know how, but it is that English version. I, I do see that. Yeah, I know what you're talking about now. There are some people who sell those Region 2 Blu-rays or DVDs here in the States, and I think it is for that same reason, a reason that just they're selling them because they know people are going to buy them. And it is, yeah, it saves you the hassle of having it shipped over. Lady Frankenstein, I think I have that on a crazy Frankenstein two DVD set that I think also came with uh, Jesse James meets Frankenstein or whatever that was. and Or maybe it was Frankenstein's daughter was on it. I don't know. And then it has like a whole disc of like trailers and stuff on it. 
And I remember buying it for $10, so it's a fun DVD for 10 bucks. So I remember that from the video store on VHS. We had it, and the cover was just awful. It looked... I don't know. I, it put an impression on me that like it just never appealed to me. One last thing I want to ask you. Compared the Hammer Frankenstein franchise as a whole versus Dracula, do you prefer one or the other? Ooh. Um, you know, it is... I've seen Frankenstein more than I've seen Dracula. And part of that was because some of the Dracula films I didn't have when I've had all the Frankenstein ones for a long time. With the exception of horror Frankenstein that I haven't seen, but honestly, it's almost... I don't count that. It doesn't count because it doesn't have Cushing. I'm going to say the Frankenstein series because I love Peter Cushing. And even though you've got some variances in his background and as the films go on, there's some contradictions and stuff. He's fairly consistent in how he portrays Baron Victor Von Frankenstein. Depending on the movie, his name kind of changes too. Christopher Lee's really good. I might, you know, if I ever revisit all the Dracula movies, which I think we're going to now because Carla wants to see more Hammer, which darn, that means I've got to watch more Hammer films that I haven't seen for a while. If I, once I see all the Dracula movies, I might feel different, you know, and I'm sitting here thinking is like, now do I want to get that Blu-ray of Satanic Rites of Dracula? Oh, that, I think you have to on that, even if you don't get both, because that is one that's public domain, and I've seen so many different versions, and well, some I, are called Count Dracula and the I, Vampire Brides. And I think it is a no-brainer for me. The more I think about it, what I have is a DVD burn of a, of a VHS tape, so it's not even a widescreen presentation, so I think, I think that's a Halloween gift to and myself. And Richard, if you get that, you've got to get AD 1972, because those are go together. They're a couple. Well, you don't, then, want, you don't want someone to be single and lonely, do you? And then you've got what Dracula, Prince of Darkness. No, those, out on no, Blu-ray. These, no. Well, that's right. But these two go together. I, I well, can just see them sitting side by side. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I I'm gonna have to sit down and, and, <laughs> and consider that. So, you know, do I have any leaves left on the money tree? Ah, Satanic Rites of Dracula. Well. I guess I could look at it this way. If I'm going to introduce these films to Carla, I want her to get the best presentation possible. I'm doing this for my wife. There you go. It's a gift to my wife is what I'm giving her. That's my story, and I'm going to stick to it. All right, so two more votes for Cushing. So technically the game's over because even if we both vote for Lee and the Mummy, Cushing has more votes. But maybe some people think there could be a crazy turn of events and something could happen to upset that and plus if we count steve's votes we don't know what those are it's not over and done with but let's no. see what steve did think in horror of dracula pushing early hello gentlemen this is steve i'm back again for round two horror of dracula or dracula as it was released in the um, united kingdom they had to change it obviously you guys have probably already told everybody the horror of dracula because you know, we're, we Americans are just not smart enough to know that Dracula 1958 is different than the Dracula from 1931. Go figure. All right. What I loved about this movie, Christopher Lee's Dracula. Oh, my. The, the, the animalism, the, 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 the physicality, so different than um, Lugosi's Dracula. And, again, as I said about the Victor Frankenstein with Peter Cushing, when you see Christopher Lee's Dracula, for me, it's just, after you see it, it's just the other Dracula, other versions, other characters that have played Dracula just don't compare. 
it's it's still the best portrayal that I've seen of Dracula is by Christopher Lee. And even though Lugosi does an excellent job with it, if I had to pick an actor in his prime to portray Dracula, for me, I'm going with Christopher Lee. Which brings us to Peter Cushing as Van Helsing. And as we know, he played Van Helsing. Both these characters... Um, actors Lee and Cushing played these roles multiple times over multiple different movies also does an excellent job um I don't feel he's as good in this one as he was in the curse of Frankenstein but it's, he definitely does excellent work as Peter Cushing almost always does the whole movie was well casted I mean really it's hard for me to to pick other supported actors over other ones because I think it just was so well-rounded I mean it's just everybody did their parts well and made it very enjoyable um, one thing I want to talk about is the special effects of Dracula's destruction I, I just loved how that was done I mean this is 1958 so we're talking 60 years ago and it's just amazing how they were able to do those special effects or those gags um, and make these things work I'd have to say round two, in my opinion, is going to go to Lee by a little bit. I think um, the first round, as I said, Cushing came out, fought with the hands. But Lee doesn't speak much during these movies, so obviously he saves that energy and he keeps that physique going. I think I give him a small edge over Cushing in the horror of Dracula, which leads us now to one movie, The Mummy from 1959, to decide which one of these two is the best. Lee or Cushing. Ah, let's go watch it again and make my decision. Egypt, 4,000 years ago. A land of strange rituals and savage cruelty. Many of their secrets are still hidden from the eyes of 20th century man. Secrets that protect their dead. Supernatural powers that once released can live again in our modern world. The Mummy, the Living Dead, bringing terror and death across 4,000 years. He was a high priest of the great god Karnak until one night he attempted the ultimate in blasphemy. He was condemned to guard forever the princess he had loved, and protect her from intruders. Go now. Go and destroy those who desecrated the tomb of our princess. He who robs the graves of Egypt dies. the graves of Egypt dies.
into one year later, 1959, and it is time to take a look at The Mummy and the start of a lesser franchise for Hammer. Uh, the Mummy franchise would only have a total of four films, and they're all pretty much standalone films. There's not a lot of interconnectivity with them. You've got Peter Cushing playing the character of John Banning. You've got Christopher Lee playing Chorus, the the mummy, uh, a dual role, if you will. I mean, he's got uh, a lot more to do in this film, I think, compared to, to what we got in the first two films. Yvonne Fernou, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, playing Isabel Banning and Princess Sananka. And the first... Or Earl, I'm not sure it's the first Hammer appearance, but it's the first appearance in a Peter Cushing or Christopher Lee Hammer film for Michael Ripper, who is not to the level of a Cushing or a Lee, but he's present in a ton of Hammer films as a secondary character. He plays the poacher in this film. You've got uh, Jimmy Sangster back in the screenplay. You've got Terrence Fisher back as the uh, director, but... Now, the music in this film is by Franz Reisenstein, or is it Reisenstein? This is his only film for Hammer, and the only other genre-related film that he did the music for was Circus of Horrors, which I've seen many, many years ago. And I couldn't find out the reasons behind his uh, death, but he died at a very young age, 57, in 1968. So this was less than a decade before we would lose him, so... You know, he was in his uh, in his 40s at this time. He doesn't have a lot of credit to his name, but I love what he did with this film. The music really makes this movie. Uh, from a visual perspective, there's not as much location work as you get with Horror of Dracula. You do have a lot more, you know, a soundstage work, similar to what we got in, in Curse of Frankenstein. And even, I think, some of the quote-unquote on-location shots and discovery of the mummy at the beginning of the film. Uh, obviously, a lot of that was done on soundstage as well. I don't know. This, this movie and, and the music and, and the mummy is always playing third fiddle to the to Count Dracula and to the Frankenstein monster. I, I love what they did with this movie, and, and I love what we get from Christopher Lee primarily in this film. Peter Cushing is great. But I loved what we got from, from Christopher Lee. So are you saying your vote's Lee? I'm going to say it's, it's for Lee. On yeah, this me too, and I'll explain that in a minute. I wanted to say on the sets, yes, but still, I, I think this is the best example of Hammer making as much as they can out of what little money they had. It's, they're beautiful sets, and the colors in this movie are so vibrant. They and are, I don't know yes. if you even noticed, Peter Cushing's eyes are just a bright I blue. Know. It's just... Yeah, there, there's some great, great colors. I, I don't know if there's tinkering after the fact, you know, to, to enhance the colors or if it's this version, but I just think it's a beautiful... Did you watch the DVD or the Blu-ray of this? Oh... I don't remember. Because this is available on Blue right here in the States and for $15. I did not upgrade it. I watched the old Snapcase and it looks amazing as far as I'm concerned on that. If they did any amount of restoration, this would be a film I would consider upgrading to, to see the Blu-ray. I'll have to do like a screen comparison. Like DVD Beaver has that where you can kind of compare the two. Hopefully they did some restoration, but you never know because I'm not sure who released it. I think it might be... 
Is it Universal? Maybe. No, Warner Brothers has the rights to this, so I don't know if they put any money into the restoration or not. If anyone's out there has seen the Blu-ray of The Mummy, let us know what you think, and let us know, is it worth the upgrade? Because I think the DVD looks great, and I would love to see a good restored version on Blu-ray, and I don't know if we have that yet or not. The reason I don't know what I watch, you would think, how dumb am I? We just watch these movies. I did not actually watch this most recently when I watched the other two. I had watched it a few months ago. I did a Mummy Week on my blog, and I watched it and wrote about it. The truth comes out, you cheated, sir. I don't think so. I still have very valid points to make. Uh, And as far as Lee goes, yeah, definitely my vote. He does some amazing things with that. I mean, here's a character wrapped in bandages, so he's got to do it with his eyes, and he does. And I love the fact that we know his tongue was cut out before he was mummified. And if you watch, his his cheeks kind of puff out. I don't know if he's trying to speak or if he's breathing or what, but what little detail would... Have you ever seen a mummy, you know, that had such a, a, a face with such... No. reactions yeah. and, and emotions. I, I just think it's incredible. Plus, I think he evolves through the movie. You know, he starts out and he's just kind of this lumbering thing, but he becomes more agile. He, I just think there is a whole heck of a lot to that he brought to a character that's basically wrapped in cloth, only can emote by moving his body or by showing his eyes, and I, I just think he did amazing. The story is is actually, of these three, is more in line with what Universal had done in the 1940s. And that's because apparently by this point, Universal gave a little bit more leeway to what Warner Brothers could do, or what Hammer could do, with the story. And so, it's not a remake of Karloff's 32 Mummy. It is got a lot more to do with The Mummy's Hand yes. in 1940, which I think is an underrated film. Uh, I love that 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 Universal film and and uh, the right on of humor and some fun. Um, it's it's an oddball film because it doesn't have uh, a well known name playing the mummy. It's Tom Tyler playing the mummy. Uh, it's got those crazy blacked out eyes, which are just really creepy. This movie, there's a lot that reminds me. I think even the name Chorus, I think, comes from the Mummy's Hand. I know we got some different names back in the Universal films, but again, that was because Universal allowed them to have more of the Universal elements in the film. And whether or not that played a big factor or not, I don't know. But it it's a, it is a familiar story, but done incredibly well. Yes, and I think it contains elements from that the second cycle of Mummy, of Universal Mummy movies. So not just the Mummy's Hand, but Mummy's Ghost, Mummy's Tomb, Mummy's Curse. There's I think you can pick out almost something that we've seen in one of those movies, but not all in one. I think it, it takes from all of them, which I think is really cool. So again, sort of like Dracula, it's a good consolidation of story elements that make it a very good, not quite as action-packed, I'd say, as Dracula, although there's a similar scene with Cushing and Lee, similar to the climax of Dracula, except it takes place at the first of The Mummy. Cushing doesn't leap o- over a table like he does, but... He he does leap. Uh, he jumps backward over a desk as the mummy is approaching. Grabs a fireplace poker. Oh yes. and stabs him in the heart. So it's similar. Well, but that's and there's that's. Uh, I mean, the mummy is definitely on the attack in that particular scene. It's a very physical scene. You wouldn't always get in the mummy movie. The mummy movie sometimes 
the mummy's a bit more lumbering. This this mummy is is active and he's violent and to the extent that Lee even hurt himself when he came crashing through the door, he dislocated his shoulder uh, and they kept it in the film. And I guess in some of the other scenes, he's he's actually dealing with a dislocated shoulder as he continued to to film some of the other scenes in his injured state, which gives I think all credit to Christopher Lee. I think he also hurt his back. I think which played a part in, in the way he was able to do some of the scenes because he was working through them injured rather than taking time off. So, again, it just goes to show you that what you know Christopher Lee was willing to go through for this movie and, and the, giving an amazing performance. All these poor actors, what they do for their craft. I mean, more times than not, you hear of a injury that you know affected them I guess this one hopefully passed for Christopher Lee. We know he didn't get addicted to pain kills. No, and he just certainly didn't seem to impact his film choice. And the fact that he was still acting right up into his passing. I mean, he was... How old was Christopher Lee when he passed? He was... Do you know how old he was? I don't know offhand. I don't know if I wrote it down or not. And I don't think that I did. Christopher Lee, I mean, he was still acting at an advanced age. So he wasn't traveling outside of outside of England. He was doing a lot of green screen work in his last several films, including the Hobbit trilogy. I mean, they had the Peter Jackson came to the UK to film his scenes for that, that trilogy. Yeah, I don't think he injured himself to the extent that it, it plagued him last with Boris Karloff's bad back did play a huge part in his uh, mobility or lack thereof in the last gosh, you know, six, seven years of his life, certainly. I wanted to say one thing about Michael Ripper, too. Actually, when we talked about Horror of Dracula, there was a character in that that would have been perfect for Michael Ripper, and that was the guy at the station that raised the gate for them to be able to get from Dracula's castle to where the Homewoods lived. That just would have been a perfect role for Michael Ripper, and I, I don't know why he didn't get that. That's true. Um, that's true. I, I, I was sort of looking for him in that movie. I didn't remember if he was in it, and that just would have been perfect. Anyway, Christopher Lee was ninety-three, by the way. Oh, okay. I did have it in my notes. So Good. he he was he did live. Cushing himself was eighty-one, so he lived and he died in ninety-four. So uh, Christopher Lee was good friends with Cushing right up to the very end, but he lived quite a bit longer after Cushing's passing, which is you know kind of sad. Yeah, he lived to he lived a very full life, passing at the age of ninety three. And considering, as I said, he was still acting right up until his passing, and still releasing videos every year, and he was still doing his Charlemagne heavy metal music. <laughs> I mean, he he didn't uh, he didn't ease into retirement at all. He stayed very active. Again, just saying, I don't think Cushing's character maybe was as developed or just wasn't as dynamic a character as Van Helsing was in Dracula. But I, I do think, I'm, I'm glad you agree with me that, that Lee gets the vote in this movie. No, I mean, it's always fun to see the two of them together and it enhances the movie. It is one of Cushing's lesser roles, I think, because as you, I think, as you said, it wasn't, wasn't as well defined. I would agree with that. So, Well, anything else to say before we see what Mr. Turek thought? Only little side note I had on this was uh, that we haven't talked about already is that it was part of a double bill in the United States and <laughs> two very interesting films. It was paired with The Bat with Vincent Price 
um, or Curse of the Undead, which was really the very end of the traditional universal horror output. Two films in which really are oddball films to pair. First off, they're both black and white. The Bat, Vincent Price, okay. Vincent Price's name, but The Bat, not good. I wouldn't think a good pairing for The Mummy. And Curse of the Undead, no, that's not a bad film, but I think they could have, I don't know what you would have paired it with compared to what was out at the time, but I think you could have found something better than those two films. Hmm. Yeah, I didn't know that. That's odd. Other than that, no, I think... Wrapping up three amazing films, and uh, let's let's hear what Steve has to All say. All right, so I, I'm pretty sure, at least by our votes, Cushing's going to win. I'm not I'm not thinking mathematician wise whether Steve could overrule us, but I don't think when we come back we're going to talk about who won. So we'll let everyone do their math and see if there's an upset or if Steve agrees with us. Probably on one of them, I think Cushing's our winner in that contest. Sounds good. Uh, I'm back again with the final movie, round number three, the deciding round. Who's going to win, Lee or Cushing? Well, I can tell you who wins, in my opinion. All of us were getting to watch these two guys at the height of their powers when they're getting introduced to everybody in these three movies. And for me, The Mummy, the 1959 version, is the best of the lot. It is so good that when I did that movie poll with for Derek for Monster Kid Radio, and I came up my top 20 monster movies of all time. This was one of my top 20, and the other two did not make my cut. So it tells you how much I put this movie, you know, in how much um, I really enjoy this movie. Again, the suit acting of Christopher Lee is amazing. I mean, what he's able to convey in his eyes is a tremendous amount, but also... He does actually get to come out from the suit and do some acting, which which is great because it probably helped his career a long way for people to actually get to see more of what he looks like and more of what he can do. Peter Cushing does a good job, but I feel this, out of the three movies, is probably the one where he doesn't bring as much to it as he does with the other two. The supporting cast, this is just it's just an amazing one. Again, I'm not, it's hard for me to decide like which actor or actress is better than the rest. I mean, it's just, watching this movie, it is so well-rounded, so well-crafted. Um, you can tell that they learned from the other two and were able to make such a great movie. And I think that's part of the reason where, like, with Victor Frankenstein, with Christopher Lee in the first movie, The Curse of Frankenstein, it was mostly his movie. But these other two, it started to become more and more ensemble-like or more Christopher Lee versus Cushing type of acting going on. Well, let's look at the tail of the tape. Let's look at my final fight card. All right, the first round, we already said, for those who don't remember, went to Cushing by landslide. The second round, it went to Lee by a little bit. And this one, I think it goes to Lee by a lot more. Um, so looking at my thing, two rounds to Lee, one round to Cushing. So in my opinion, Lee is the better of the two in these three movies when you take them all together. I know other people might have it differently. That's why it's great to have multiple judges, multiple fans of these movies. And like I said to start off this one with the money, who loses in these movies? Nobody, because we get to watch them and enjoy them 
and have a lot of fun with them. And thank you, gentlemen, for bringing these movies up for us, too. View for homework for October. I'm thanking you now because I know what's coming next month. And I might not be thanking you as much for a couple of those movies that you have coming. All right? I hope you guys have a great October. I know you'll be watching a lot of movies. And I know you'll be posting a lot of things up. I'm looking forward to reading on your different blogs and that kind of stuff. And can both you guys have a very, very happy Halloween. This is Steve Turk signing off. Bye. Hello, this is Rod Barnett, the host of The Bloody Pit, the podcast about eclectic film from across the decade. On The Bloody Pit, we've covered Godzilla movies, Doctor Who movies starring Peter Cushing, The Outer Limits, Fu Manchu, Doc Savage, old radio shows, my favorite movies of all time, a Lucio Fulci film or two, 1970s science fiction movies, and a long series on the films of Italian maestro Antonio Margheriti. So if you're curious to learn a little bit about some of the stranger areas of cult film and television, join me and my rotating group of co-hosts on The Bloody Pit. You might even learn something about Coffin Joe. And that's scary, people. Very scary. We are back for some new business. Seems like a lot in the month of October to talk about. Your wallet, I believe you may suffer a little bit more when you hear some of these new releases. I know I am. I, I, I'm, you know, I've been trying to be very good and being very frugal with my purchases lately. And I, because I, I've, I recently, here's a tangent, but went through finally and, and cleaned up my, to- <laughs> now, I haven't noticed, you know, anything else we've heard so far, I don't think is going to interfere. That was something. This is a commercial for Midas Muffler Shop. <laughs> yes. We're sponsored by. Going on a little bit of a tangent, but I recently kind of reboxed my to-read stack of comics and came up with a crazy count of what I have to read. And I'm not ashamed to admit it because I know that there's other hoarders out there <laughs> along with me, but I probably have about uh, 1,800 comics to read. I've been on this crazy purchasing thing for the last four or five years where I've been buying up a whole series of like the Defenders and the Eternals and the Champions and Justice League. And I, I went through a period of time when real life just kind of got me into a mode where I wasn't reading. In the last couple of months, I've, I've reached this point of happiness and contentment. And I'm pulling back from purchasing a lot of crazy stuff until I get to a point where my to-watch stack and my to-read stack is virtually diminished. Now, that said, I'm not saying I'm not going to buy anything, but I'm trying to be good. And then you send me this email randomly. <laughs> oh, have you heard they found London After Midnight? <laughs> yeah, the sound version. <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. So then it's like, so I have to resist temptation. So go ahead, 
throw throw your best at me and, yeah. and let's see how my wallet suffers. Well, or. you're a better man than I. And I just want to say on the comic books, you start reading. What are you going to do when you hit that one issue you're missing? And and then. Well, you that's can't my, go any further. See, I, that's my thing is I'm not reading anything until I have the complete run. So as you well know, I'm down to like some random issues that are hard to find. And so I could find them. I could go online and get them. But it's almost fun now. I'm down to those last 10 that I'm like, I'm going to find them. And I'm going to find them for a dollar somewhere without going to the dollar bins. Anyway, I, it's, I, I know everyone has the same to craziness. And that's part of what we're doing in October, which I'm sure we'll talk about on our blogs, going through that to watch stack and those movies that you've had on the shelf for a while. So, t- so why don't you tell me what okay. new movies I'm yes. going to add to my well, shelf? We'll start out easy. These are ones I don't think you particularly would want or need. These are ones that are out now, but since we didn't meet last month, I just wanted to mention that they are available. They're all three from Warner Archive, Queen of Outer Space, which we saw at uh, Cinema Go-Go, yes. The Cyclops, which did we talk about that we when we talked about Amazing casu- Colossal Man. We talked and- about it casually. Um, I used to have that. I don't know that I still do or not. Yeah. I don't think I had a good copy of it. Uh, and The Swarm. So if you're into 70s Irwin Allen disaster movies, those three are out. I just want to mention right. that. Now, is safe. now, get your wallet out so it can breathe a little bit. <laughs> On October 2nd, we have The Night Stalker on Blu-ray from yeah. Kino Lorber. That Great television movie, Darren McGavin, the Night Stalker television series, a a classic. Oddly, I, over the years, have come to appreciate the sequel, The Night Strangler, a little bit better. That's also coming out. I actually don't know what day it comes out. I don't know if it's the same, because the other Dan Curtis movie, Trilogy of Terror, is coming out the 16th. They're not all on the same day. I think they were all supposed to come out at the same time. I think Trilogy of Terror got pushed back a few weeks. I could be wrong. Now, Trilogy of Terror, I pre-ordered the minute I saw that it was coming out. It has not had a recent home video release. I'm not really sure the history of its release, but when I saw that was coming, I haven't even seen it in years, and I would have not been able to see it. So that that was a no-brainer. It's got the Zuni fetish It sure does. Yeah. My wallet might have to give up. Yeah. Uh, it's what, only 15 bucks. I yeah, think. It's, yeah, it's, it's only 15 yeah. And you get four or five of them. You know, it's only 60 bucks. I mean, <laughs> not strictly horror, but a great movie is also coming out on the second from Kino, The Spiral Staircase. It's, it's more yeah. a thriller, but that's a, a really good movie. I did not order that, but I'm tempted. That's a movie that my mom always really liked, and uh, I should probably get that. On the 9th, these seem like they have been out many, many times, but we have new steel books from Shout Factory, Halloween 2, and Halloween 3. Eh, I'm not planning to get them, but Steelbook? You know, I, I recently, you and I had this conversation about I was getting like every single Marvel release on Steelbook. But of course, now they're they're exclusive to Best Buy. But now you got to get the ultra high def 4K version, which I don't have, and I'm not going to go that route because I just don't think there's that much of a difference unless you're watching a new film. I mean, let's be honest. I watch a lot of old films that you know, in, in some cases, going from DVD to Blu-ray, there's not much of a difference unless you really put the money and effort into restoring it. I quit doing Steelbook on the Marvel movies. I did buy Solo in Steelbook because it was going to look better on my shelf because <laughs> it's going between two what other, other reason is there that's exactly and that's I, I you know i've got a problem but it it looks better 
because it goes between Rogue One and and my The Force Awakens, uh, which I might have those out of order on the shelf. I don't know. Anyway, the because I've got the one Star Wars box set uh, on Blu-ray, and then I've got to put the other steel books together, you know, because I'm a nerd that way. So, no, I'm not going to dive into. I have Halloween. One and two, I'm happy with what I've got. And I know the reason they're doing that is because we have a new little Halloween oh, film yeah. coming out at the end of the month, which I want to see. But, no. Actually, I don't know that I have Halloween 3 on Blu-ray. I love that movie. Oh, Halloween 3? I don't have that on Blu-ray. No, that is a fun film. And if you're a true monster kid, right now in your head you have the Silver Shamrock song and you can't get it out of your head. Yeah, if we had like a, a board of sound effects, that's where you push the button and it would <laughs> pop up. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> on the ninth, we also have Bloodlust from 1977 on Mondo Macabro. The 16th, I've never heard of this movie, Richard. It's from Kino. It stars Martin Landau from 1964. Yeah. It's called The Ghost of Sierra de Cobra. That caught my eye. It's a pilot for a TV oh, series. Really? But it's not really a movie. It's a bit of a cheat because... I'm not even sure that there's more than 60 minutes ah. worth. If, if you, you might be getting 70 minutes at best, and it, but it was it's not a movie. It's a pilot for a TV series that didn't sell. That said, never heard of it. And Martin Landau, you know. Oh, did we say Martin Landau? Martin Landau starred in Mission Impossible, in which Leonard Nimoy replaced Martin Landau on Mission Impossible. There we go. That's actually a shorter connection. Thank you for that. Oh, anytime. Oh, anytime. Leonard Nimoy, Mr. Spock from Star yes, Trek. Yes, yes. Proceed. Yes. On the 23rd, uh, Sisters from Criterion Collection. Now, I have the Criterion DVD, and you remember when we talked about Sisters, Brian De Palma, the bonus features on the DVD were, I, I don't know what to say, they're not full motion picture, no, they're yeah. like pages you scroll through yeah, to yeah. read, and I gotta get a, a more deluxe version of Sisters that has some actual special features on it. So uh, this is a hard month for me. <laughs> uh, also, Blood and Black Lace is coming from VCI on the twenty third. I have a feeling that has been out many times before. And then on the thirtieth, we have The Wasp Woman, which I would not normally consider getting on Blu-ray, but I have heard. Well, Derek did it on Monster Kid Radio. And uh, there's some feedback to that. It's making me think maybe I should get the Wasp Woman on Blu-ray. Isn't that the one that's got extra footage? Yes. There's two versions two on the Blu-ray. Yeah. yeah. So it's always a good reason to get it. <laughs> and then finally on the 30th, some more 70s goodness from Arrow Home Video Torso. Now, this is... these You're talking about things coming up in October. Yes. So one movie you didn't mention is something that just recently came out is the Blu-ray for Exorcist II, The Heretic. Did you get it? No. Oh, but that's this another one I meant to me get. That, so this is, what, this is where that, that's that rabbit hole you get into. I looked through my collection. Well, I've got The Exorcist on DVD. And I have Exorcist II as an off-air recording, which desperately needs to be replaced. Because there's two different versions of that film. You and I have had this conversation. Of course, we're getting both of those on this Blu-ray. But then, oh no, I don't have Exorcist 3, which is a really good film, an underrated film. But then I'm like, okay, if I get Exorcist 2 and 3 on Blu-ray, 
I need to get Exorcist on Blu-ray. Oh, no, it's apparently out of print and is going for like $70 or some crazy amount. I'm like, are you kidding? Oh, that's when they'll re-release, though, surely. So I, there's a part of me that's like, I want to get Exorcist 2, but then I know the rabbit hole it's going to send me on. At the moment, I'm resisting. And then we'll find out next week that it's been recalled or out of print and going for $100, and I'll be regretting it. And we'll talk about that on next month's show. The moment yeah, I'm resisting. That one slipped through during the life thing that we talked about. And it's not a I good movie, but I think it's an. I think there's. I think there's more to that film than than people give it credit for. And the fact that we both met Linda Blair a few months ago, she talked yeah, about. Yeah, she signed my not my Exorcist lobby card, but my Exorcist Two lobby card. And she so talked yeah. about that movie a little bit. So yeah. uh, and the craziness involved in the production. So. That kind of makes me want to get it. Birthdays in October, October 5th, 1919, Donald Pleasance. So Halloween, Halloween 2, New Halloween. We haven't talked much about that, but you know, Halloween's one of my favorite horror movies. I'm excited for the new one. I don't like that the, we talked about this. The trailers are showing a little bit too much, but I still really, really want to see it. <laughs> Automatic tangent there. Donald Pleasance and to that. So, well, sorry. I'll, you want to go on another tangent? I just recently saw The House and, uh, with the Clock in Its Walls, directed by Eli Roth. I recommend that film, folks. Check it if you can. I've read, Some of the reviews I read is that, you know, Jack Black is too much Jack Black. I don't think so. I've seen him in other films where he goes way over top. He does his shtick in this film, but I think it goes with... His character, and I think it goes with the the tone of the film, which is a little bit like Harry Potter. But there's some fun horror elements to this, and there's some pretty graphic scenes. It's a fun film, hmm. and and I, I highly recommend people check it out. I did see that it won the box office its first week. I didn't see how it performed last week, and I don't know how it's performing overall, and I haven't really read any more reviews on it, but I will say it's a fun film. Hmm. Uh, it's interesting to see Eli Roth doing a non-R-rated film, and this is his kid-friendly, family-friendly film. And it is. It's a fun film. It's. I would be interested to see. It's the start of a, a book series, actually, and there's quite a few books in this series. I wouldn't mind seeing a, you know another film, and I wouldn't mind going back to this universe because there's a lot of fun, crazy stuff that happens. I mean, crazy pumpkins that come to life, and a good Halloween-esque film that... Uh, I wish maybe they would have held off a few weeks to release in October, which is always puzzles me why some of these films come out. Like The Nun comes out, you know, when it did. I was like, why not wait a month and put it out in yeah. October when people will go see anything at the box office that's horror-related? Granted, you got Halloween at the end of the month, but, you know, put a movie out at the beginning of the month. Anyway, that's my little tangent and my little two-second review. Check it out. On to more birthdays. October 10th, 1924, Edward D. Wood Jr. We talked about Bride of the Monster in our Bela Bela Lugosi episode. October 14th, 1916, Jack Arnold, a popular director, a very always included a science lesson in his movies, <laughs> including Creature from the Black Lagoon. October 20th, 1882, Bela Lugosi. October 23rd, 1880, talk about beloved person, Bela Lugosi, to perhaps not so beloved, Una O'Connor. You know, I I was just recently listening to uh, a Monster Kid radio episode where they're talking about, I don't 
understand the hate. I like Una. She makes me laugh. She's crazy. She's over the top. I don't know. I get her. She makes me laugh. She's funny. I like her. So count me in in her camp. I know some people hate her. I think she's funny. I like her. Yeah. Oh, I don't hate her. I, I don't know that I like her, but uh, she definitely stands out. I think she's an iconic person in those movies. October 26, 1924, the great Bob Cobert, composer of music for Dark Shadows, arguably one of the qualities of Dark Shadows that makes it as creepy and as scary as it is, especially in the movies when he's got more of an orchestra with it. Terrific, terrific. And he's he's done music for other Dan Curtis productions, and it's always fantastic. Burnt Offerings comes to mind. And then October 28th, 1902, Elsa Lanchester, Bride of Frankenstein. Anniversaries, movies that came out in October, and we talk about how odd it is that horror movies don't come out in October. Quite a few actually have come out over the years. This is not an inclusive list, but on October 1st, 1968, Night of the Living Dead premiered in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Same day, October 1st, but in 1946, The Brute Man. I mentioned that because we talked about The Brute Man in our Rondo Hatton episode. October 4th, 1957, The Amazing Colossal Man premiered in Las Vegas. I made note of that. I thought that was an interesting place for the premiere, seeing as how The Amazing Colossal Man... Oh, no, he... That's War of the Colossal Beast ends up in Vegas, doesn't it? Isn't it? I'm not sure. One of them. Now I'm even thinking... Uh, I don't know which one it is now. I, You're right. I don't know that it is Amazing Colossal Man. But Las Vegas, fun place to have a movie premiere. October 13th, 1972, Grave of the Vampire. I mentioned that because that was, I think, kind of fun movie. I watched it, wrote about it on the blog. I don't know that it's necessarily very well known, but it's kind of worth a watch. I saw it many years ago. It's public domain, I believe. October 18th, 1976, Burnt Offerings, I mentioned. Dan Curtis, Dark Shadows Connection. October 20th, 1932, The Old Dark House. We talked about that on our Karloff episode. October 25th, 1978, Halloween. 1978, the original, the great. And as you may know, that premiered right here in Kansas City. I remember that. That's that's correct. Yeah. October 30th, 1959, The Wasp Woman. We just talked about that coming out on Blu-ray. And finally, on October 31st, 1969, a Japanese film called Horrors of Malformed Men. I recently watched that. It came out on Arrow Video, and uh, my thoughts about that are on my blog. And finally, our last feature is the TV Terror Guide. So it's October, Richard time that you can just plant yourself in front of the TV and watch horror movies around the clock. You already mentioned what's on Sven Gulli. I actually only knew the, that on the 6th was Return of the Vampire, so I'm glad to hear you know at least one more of that on the 13th is Cry of the Werewolf. Cry of the Werewolf. I think they just announced it in the last couple of days. I just happened to see that. Yeah, I've not seen it. Now, Turner Classic Movies, which does, they tweak their formula. I feel like it's getting to the point that we're seeing the same movies every once in a while. They throw something in. This year, I kind of like what they're doing. They're not spreading them out all day, every day, even. Well, they are the last couple days of the month, but they're taking nights that they're devoting. For example, on October 10th is Christopher Lee. Yeah. So just that night, all Christopher Lee. The 17th is Boris Karloff. 24th, Bela Lugosi. And then on the 31st, ah, we're going to come back to that. Also, the monster of the month on TCM is The Mummy. 
on four consecutive weeks on the 7th, 14th, 21st, and 28th are all mummy movies. I'm sure the 1959 version will be one of those, although I didn't note what night that was. And that was something we didn't, uh, we talked about very briefly how the mummy franchise, what we just talked about, kind of backtracking for a second. It wasn't as prolific as the Frankenstein or Dracula series because we only got four films. Each film is very separate. You've got to guess, give a little bit of a note to the Mummy Shroud because there's an uncredited uh, narration at the beginning of that movie with, from Peter Cushing. Really? Uh, yeah. Hmm. The first time I, I, I watched that, I bought it You know, on, I think, Anchor Bay, was it, when they did, were putting out the DVDs for a while? And I was like, oh, that's Peter Cushing's voice. And, and I don't think you see that anywhere in the credits. But sure enough, it was an uncredited uh, narration for Peter Cushing. Huh. So at the very beginning of that film. And, okay, I just thought of this, but one of the actors in that film is Roger Delgado, and he played the master on Doctor Who. I'm sorry. Ah. Was, you just There's so much to mine through these Hammer films. So and anyway, that just came to my mind. Uh, anyway, and I think what we had, Blood of the Mummy's Tomb was the last, and I can't remember the other one. It was, what was the name of that other other one in that series. I'm drawing a blank and I watched all those because I had never seen them when I did my Mummy Week. Uh, I don't remember. Curse of the Mummy I think, cur- yeah, I think so. Yes, yeah, I think that's right. Okay, yeah. yeah. Uh, let's see what else we got. Oh, there's doing uh, two nights on the 22nd and 29th. It's 200 Years of Frankenstein. So Frankenstein Films. On the 27th, they're doing An Evening of Ghostly Encounters. On the 30th, they're doing Bowery Boys Horror. Lots of good stuff, but like I say, sort of concentrating them on evenings rather than spreading them out, and not every day either. So I kind of like that approach. Now, the last one that I said we'd come back to on October 31st, and I love it, their star of the night is Vincent Price. So we're going to see some wonderful Vincent Price movies, and that is a great segue into something that we are going to do. We're sort of forced to do this. We are responding to a a challenge of sorts. Would you like to tell us about that, Richard? Derek over at Monster Kid Radio tagged us to essentially answer uh, several questions about Vincent Price and the films of Vincent Price. I immediately started formulating an answer or two to the first couple of questions, and then uh, in the midst of this uh, Facebook conversation, you said, well, we're recording. Uh, no, 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 no. You committed us to this challenge. You were the first one well, who responded. You said, I, I challenge said, accepted. I said challenge accepted for myself. Well, but if you watch the video, we were tagged as the podcast. This, this is true. This yes. is true. So I, I, when I accepted the challenge, though, I will have to say I hadn't watched the video uh, yet. Gotcha. I, I saw what the tag was that I accepted. And then I saw that it was both of us, and then I, you saw what well, we're doing, and, you know, the podcast recording, and I was like, okay, now it all makes sense. So, but I will say, in all fairness, I accepted for myself early on, and that's where I immediately started formulating answers, and then the conversation, and then I watched the videos, like, okay, now I get that this is a group effort. So I stopped formulating answers to these questions. This We're just going to be winging this. Both of yep. us are going to be... As we see these questions, we're going to throw out the answers from whatever comes up at the top of our head. So, yeah, and well, I believe me, I'm just giving you a hard time. I'm not complaining. I love that we're doing this. And have you thought about who we're going to tag? We should be thinking about that as we go, as, so that we can say at the end. I may have an idea I, I, or two. I've got an idea or okay, two as well. Good. So good. All right. So I 
did not think about answers at all. I just went through the questions, watched the video, and, and typed the questions. So here we go. Ten questions, no right or wrong answer. It's just our opinion. Now, are we agreeing or are we... No, if we have to agree, well, it'll go forever. Should we just each state what ours is? I think we just each state okay. what we want. Yeah. All right, so number one, what is our favorite Vincent Price horror film? I would go... And it's going to, if let me just give my disclaimer. <laughs> it, this will change, right, depending on the sure. day, time, hour. But I'm always kind of drawn to either The Raven or House on Haunted Hill. And so I'm going to give the edge to The Raven because there's just a lot of fun in that. It, it's not as serious as some of the others, but you got Boris Karloff. You've got Peter Lorre. You've got a young Jack Nicholson. You've got Hazel Court. Yeah, there's a lot in that film. So, The Raven. And on most any day, although favorites change, Abominable Dr. Fives would be my I favorite. I knew that you were going to say yeah. that. Yeah. yeah, I just love that movie. Number two, our favorite non-horror film with Peter, uh, Peter Cushing, Vincent Price. Uh, this one's a little bit tougher it because is. there's a few that I haven't seen yet. I'm, I'm going to say Laura, which is a wonderful film. That said... The Whales of August is a film that I, I want to see. I have it on Blu-ray, courtesy of one of your emails. Hey, did you know someone's <laughs> having a sale? That's a movie that I want to see sooner than later. But from what I've actually seen, I would say Laura. I agree. That's that's also my choice. Number three, who would win in a fight? This is appropriate for the way the episode turned out. Vincent Price, Christopher Lee, or Peter Cushing? Oh, wow. In a fight. Like what type of fight, I guess you have to know. I I would say, I'd, I'd give the, the edge, depending on what type of fight it was, I'd say maybe Christopher Lee, because I, I think Peter Cushing and, and Vincent Price are both generally so gentlemanly. However, if you get like Vincent Price from like the Witchfinder General, I'd give the edge to Price. So I would, you know, I'll say Christopher Lee, but... The price has a chance, depending on the circumstance. Yeah, when I think of fight, I think physical, and I think with his physicality, Christopher Lee would probably... He had the height advantage. So. Yes, yes. Number four, thriller or welcome to my nightmare? Thriller. Yeah, no-brainer for me. Thriller. Love, 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 love. When that comes on and everyone's all excited and doing the dance, I'm waiting for that rap. I know, and, yeah. and, and yes, you, you sing along with it yep. no matter where you are, yeah. yeah. Number five, take an actor in a horror movie and replace him with Vincent Price. What movie? And what actor? Oh, wow. <laughs> I'll let you go first. <laughs> I, you know, I don't know what to say. I feel like when I watch movies, I sometimes think, oh, that would have been so cool. Like, like I did with Michael Ripper. Like, that was a role that should have been Michael Ripper. I'm going to abstain from, from answering this. I just, I don't think I can make an intelligent. It would definitely be... It wouldn't be one of the big actors, you know, Lee or Cushing, because he couldn't replace those. It would be a more unrecognizable face, someone that's not as well known, that the gravitas of Price would have brought up the quality of the production and the, the performance of the character. Yeah, I'm going to have to cop out. That's a tough one. I, I gosh, because you could go with, yeah, I wouldn't want to replace like a, a big name actor, because then I think you you would get maybe an entirely different film. Okay, maybe. I'll go with this. The Boogeyman Will Get You, putting Vincent Price in Boris Karloff's role and having him paired up with, with Peter Lorre because I know how those two 
pair off against each other. So yeah, I'll go with that one. Oh, that's good. That's you. You, you could have come up with anything and done better than me because I <laughs> copped out. Number six. This is kind of fun. How would you want Vincent Price to kill you? Oh man, something along the lines. Although it'd be a horrific death, but something along the lines of the pit and the pendulum. Because you know he's just somewhere where he gets a speech. You know, something to where if I'm going to go out, I want to go out horrifically, and I want Vincent to have this big, long, drawn-out, eloquent, crazy speech. Mine's along the same lines, and I'd want him to poison my wine as he was doing yes. a wine tasting. Yes. Was yes, that yes, what was that? Was it Tales of Terror? Uh, yes, yes, I think it was. That, yeah. That's the scene with Peter Lorre and his the expression he was the, making. The, that version of the the cask of the Montecato. Yes, yes. yes. So, Poison my wine, but I, as I go, I want to watch him making those faces. Yes. Number seven, Vincent Price was on a lot of TV shows. What is your favorite classic TV show that he appeared in? <sighs> Man. <laughs> while, I, while you're thinking, so we don't have dead air, yeah. this is silly, but it's the first thing that comes to mind, the Brady Bunch. I just... I thought I was thinking the Brady Bunch. It was a natural to, to go with that, but I, I'm kind of thinking... God, there's gotta he was be, in so much. There's there was there was so much, and there's got to be something else that that trumps the Brady Bunch. But you know, I'll, I'll go with the Brady Bunch. I, I'm sure I'm missing something big and iconic, but I'll go with that. Yeah, that says something. It's so memorable. That's what we both yeah. first thought of. Number eight, favorite movie of his that has the word house in the title. So let's run those down. We've got House on Haunted Hill. Uh, <laughs> what else? House of Wax. House of Wax. Is House of a Thousand Dolls, is that? House of a Thousand Dolls. Uh, House of the Long Shadows. Uh, is there anything else? I feel like there is. Uh, there's probably some like huge one that we're missing right at the top of my head without cheating and going to anything. Let's stick with those. Sure. Then which one? Hmm. You know, I love House of Wax, but I would say that I've seen House on Haunted Hill more times, and that one is just a fun movie. House of Wax is fantastic, but House on Haunted Hill is fun, so I'll go with that one. Yeah, I will too. Really, it's between that and House of a Thousand Dolls, but, you know, I'll go with House on Haunted Hill. House of a Thousand Dolls. Number nine, what bedtime story would you like Vincent Price to read you? Oh... <laughs> what's the uh good night moon <laughs> i was thinking that or the uh what's the the one with samuel jackson the go to sleep you know where you know he, he keeps getting all the curse words and stuff you know i don't know yeah I, either one of those either one of those i'm sure there's probably something equally more horrific like you know a grim's fairy tale being told with vincent price's voice would be horrific. Would, it, would a Poe story work? I mean, I, oh gosh. any of those, I think. Yes, I yes, yeah. You're 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 four years old and getting a bedtime <laughs> story. Oh, I, I think it means now when we're an adult. Oh, now. Know, like, well, yeah, yeah. You know, get my jammies on and. Oh yeah, I mean, if you're gonna go with a bedtime story, anything by Poe with Edgar Allan, you know, Edgar Allan Poe's. Raven, yeah. maybe, or anything. I think Raven comes anything to from Poe with, with Price doing it? Yeah. 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 And finally, what is your favorite performance by Vincent Price in an animated movie? 
So I guess this could be he voiced an animated character or he also appeared as himself animated, at least one thing. I'm trying to... Um, Thief and the Cobbler. Yeah. And 13 Ghosts of Scooby-Doo. Uh-huh. Vincent Van Gogh. I should know. I just wrote about this. There are several. He did voice for... Well, I'm, I'm trying to think, like, there's the Great Mouse Detective, which was fun, but 13 Ghosts of Scooby-Doo I would, would would be what I would go with. Yeah. That was an upgrade for Scooby-Doo, because Scooby-Doo's early two seasons are the best, and then it got a... You know, then you have the Scooby-Doo movies, which are fun, and then Scrappy came along, and the show went to hell in a handbasket, and then 13 Ghosts did away with Scrappy and brought back Daphne, who I think had been off the, for a while. And Goofy, you know, still, but... No, yeah. Goofy wasn't in it. He's Disney. <laughs> oh, gosh, I'm sorry. Yeah, I mean, Vincent Price makes that, you know, his one or two scenes. Yeah, 13 Ghosts is good. Yeah, I like that, too, his character. And to me, that's Vincent Price animated, and I like that. But I'm going to go with Great Mouse Detective, because that is a completely average movie that's not one of Disney's best, but he definitely brings it up to a new level. So I'll go with that, just to be different. All right, so that was fun. Who are we going to tag? Do you want to each tag one person? You know, I'm I'm going to assume that, you know, has Steve been tagged? Steve Turk has been Not that I know of. Okay. I'm going to tag Steve. And I'm going to tag Jonathan. Okay, I, I, that was the first time I was thinking <laughs> So, uh, duh, no brainers there. Uh, All right. So, you guys, we need, let's see, I think, I guess you don't really have to keep a chain going, uh, but I think it would be nice if they would answer these questions maybe in our group page on Facebook. Yes, so I think what we'll probably do when we post this episode, maybe we give both of them a heads up, and maybe you can note where, where this is in the time thing. It's like, you guys need to skip forward to this because there's a, a discussion that directly involves you. Something along those lines. We'll post that on the uh, Facebook page. Yeah, I had some ideas for other podcasts, but uh, I, I've seen a couple of them that have already are involved in it. So I, I think we'll go with we'll make it more personal. Go with individuals. All right, it's the moment we've been waiting for. Let's reveal the details of our contest. Should we tell the prizes first? Yes, let's do the prizes first. Why don't you? What's what's the the first prize? First, first prize is uh, from MVD Video, uh, and our our friend Clint Weiler over there has provided us with a copy of the Boris Karloff collection. This is a recent release, and it is the four movies, the four Mexican movies of his that we've talked about. A nice box set. Uh, I think pretty cool. Maybe the movies aren't that great, but I think this is a great prize. Probably, to be honest, no one's going to buy them. So. Well, well, and I know that you know some of these, I believe, are public domain. Maybe all four of them are. Some of them have different names. I believe some of them have been out of print officially on DVD for a while. I know a couple pop up on some uh, Mill Creek sets, but this is an opportunity yeah, they're they're probably the worst output. That Bor- well, no, they're not the worst that Boris Karloff did. Island Monster is still the worst film that he did. No one should get that. Even if you're a completist, just skip it. It's, it's It'll save you some heartbreak. These four have s- some measure of, of fun watchability. 
Uh, Boris Karloff certainly makes these films worth watching because otherwise they would be forgotten. Uh, have them all together in one nice set and absolutely free if you play the contest. You know, you can't beat free. Yeah, and, and we are going to do a second and third prize as well. Rich, tell us what those are. Well, you know, we've got two copies of the most recent two films of the Mimiverse. We've got the film released last year, Demon with the Atomic Brain, and the brand new released Guns of the Apocalypse. So we've got uh, two copies of those that we want to give out as second and third prize. So here, here's the deal. You might have, if you're playing this contest, you know, the fact is maybe you've got all four Boris Karloff films or maybe you've got these Mimiverse films. But if you win, then give them as a gift. And especially with the Mimiverse films, because not everybody may be a fan of the Mimiverse films because they haven't seen them. They haven't given the, given the opportunity to see a film by Christopher R. Mim. This is an opportunity to see two different types of films. If you win a copy of Demon with the Atomic Brain or Guns of the Apocalypse and you already have it in your collection, which you hopefully would do, but if you don't, you get a chance to discover them for yourself. But if you do, share them with somebody else and, and introduce them. Surely you've got somebody in your life that, uh, because, you know, for the most part, they're family films. Now, Demon with the Atomic Brain is a more typical Christopher R. film because it's it's a homage to films of the past, 1950s, 60s, uh, sci-fi monster flicks, and it's uh, definitely more family-oriented. Now, Guns of the Apocalypse, it's a bit more serious, it's a little darker, and still, for the most part, family-friendly, but there is it's a lot more violent there is a lot there's a lot of death in this film and so think about that if you win a copy of it uh it's a little bit different than some of his other films but there's once you dive into the memiverse there's so many other films to choose from so if you're familiar with them share them with a friend that's our challenge to you so let's say what you have to do to win so so basically what we want feedback we want you to either call us we want you to send us an email we want you to post on our group Facebook page. And what you will be posting, you have a choice. We don't care which one you do as long as you do one of them. But I'll talk about this in a minute, what I'm doing on my blog, and I think Richard is to a certain extent on his. We all have those stacks of movies that we've purchased and we haven't watched. They're sitting with plastic or we've got them on the DVR and we've never seen them. One thing you can do is watch one movie in the month of October that you've never seen and give us some feedback. Tell us what the movie is, what did you think of it. doesn't have to be a 500-word review, but just your thoughts. Say, hey, I watched this movie for the first time. I'm glad I did. Here's why. Or I don't recommend you watch. Here's why. So that's one way. The other way is simply take a picture of your movie collection and send it to us. I love looking at other people's collections. I know Richard does as well. Send us a picture. Or share it on the Facebook page. Yes, yeah. You share it on the Facebook page, we'll see it, and we'll automatically put your name in the hat. And I love to see those collection videos that people will post on YouTube or what have you. I think it's a lot of fun uh, to see how other people organize their collection. What do they have? Purely selfish reasons for that part of the contest. I want to see what you have. I think that would be a lot of fun uh, to, to share how you display and what you've got. By so doing, it automatically gets you an entry. 
Yep. Anyone who sends us either a comment about a movie they've never seen or sends a picture of their collection is entered in a drawing, just like Richard said, and we will draw for those three fabulous prizes. That brings us to the end of this month's meeting, but we need to get you up to date on what we're doing on our blogs. Richard, would you like to go first? Well, and with you, it's never just your blog. It's your multitude of podcasts and other things that you're working on. Wow. Okay. Uh, so I will say that wrapped up the sci-fi horror fest here within the, just the last couple of weeks, made it through, didn't skip a week, made it through the entire four months, really, I think, because we started in May, had a lot of fun with that, watched a lot of films for the first time myself, introduced a few others to Carla, and so we had a lot of fun with that. I'm going to take that theme and we're going to kind of continue to do it with the 31 days of Halloween. I've been doing this ever since I launched Monster Movie Kid back in 2012. With only one year did I not do one movie review a day. This year, based on your challenge of going through the stack to watch, most of the month is going to be first-time viewings for me. I'm diving into the films of Paul Nashi, diving into some Santo films that I purchased that I haven't seen, uh, some other random releases. Very quickly mentioned, two of the films are from a, I believe, a relatively new company called Raro Video. Uh, they've put out some interesting Blu-rays. I picked up The Long Hair of Death with Barbara Steele. And just within the last several days, I got a film that I pre-ordered, so it is available out on their site, the 1973 version of The Picture of Dorian Gray. Other, like Web of the Spider is something I, I purchased. And so... There'll be a few other films in the course of the month that I've seen before. There's a few lighthearted films like The Ghost Breakers with Bob Hope and Scared Stiff with Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis. And I'll be doing almost all of these with Carla. Similar, she'll add you know two or three sentences and her thoughts in these films because it's a first-time viewing for me. It's a first-time viewing for her. She'll be in probably 99% of them. I will say there will be at least one Nashy film that she doesn't have comments on. She struggled a little bit with Nashy, but she loves Santo. She loves some of the other things we have planned. So that's what I've got lined up for the 31 Days of Halloween. Plus, uh, I've got reviews coming up on the Dread Media podcast where I'll be talking about the Bloodthirsty Trilogy. Hopefully a review on a new film called Exposure. I met one of the people involved in that film who's a locally made film, but they got a really cool... Well, they debuted at Kansas City Crypticon. We didn't make it to the debut because we were in line for Linda Blair. But they got a really cool distribution deal. It's going to be on Showtime in October and uh, as well as uh, streaming through a couple of different sources. I think Amazon, if I remember correctly. That's pretty cool that they, they got that kind of, and plus October, I mean, you can't ask for a better month to have your film debuted, and it's a kind of an old school, 1980s style, monster in the woods flick. Hopefully I'll be doing a review for Dread Media on that as well. So, plus uh, I'll be talking about Guns of the Apocalypse without any spoilers over at the uh, October edition of the monthly Memiverse Audiocast. Great. What about you? Well, at ClassicHorse.club, I'm doing the same thing, Countdown to Halloween. I don't remember when I started, but I've done every year. This year, I'm doing, well, I'm, I'm doing a theme, and that, that we've mentioned it a couple times. It is that stack of movies that you've never watched, that you had to buy at the time. Every day, I will be watching something I have not watched. But, I'm, I don't know, it may be cheating, but I wanted to do this. 
every day will not be me. I have invited some people to be guest bloggers. These are people that I either listen to their podcasts and enjoy them, I read their blogs and enjoy them. A nice variety of people, Derek from Monster Kid Radio is going to participate, some friends that, that work on the We Belong Dead stuff. So basically every other day, you won't just have to hear my thoughts, you'll get to hear somebody else's. And I think that's pretty cool. I know there are blogathons where different blogs participate in the same thing. That's kind of what Countdown to Halloween is. But I'm not aware of of a blog like opening up and having other people. So I'm I'm excited. I'm excited that they agreed to do it. You know, my little blog, some of them, that's really nice. And of course, of course, my partner in crime, Richard, will be participating in that. That so, opened up an ugly can of worms because I... I, <laughs> I do you, do we want to keep the movie secret? No, we don't okay. have to. So I, I watched um, Octoman, which for the first time in quite a few years, I got the Blu-ray, thanks to you, yeah. I think. I think it led me set down some path that was on sale. There's a movie on there called, as a bonus, another film by the director called The Cremators. And I threw that picture up on Facebook because I had never heard of the movie before, never seen it. No one else had either, and so now all of a sudden other people are watching the movie. I think Christopher Page watched it. <laughs> it's a film that could have been so much more if they would have had more than a 25-cent budget. There's a potential for something there. As it is, it's a very interesting film. But nonetheless, uh, I had fun writing that review. I've got some history with that film that I, I wrote about that I kind of talked about before and and jokingly have had this thing with the B-movie cast many years ago. I was like, how many tentacles does Optiman really have? So uh, I had a lot of fun with that. And so uh, thank you for throwing that offer my way to do that. That was something fun writing for someone else's blog. Yeah, thank you for participating and thank everyone else that's participating. I don't have my lineup solidified yet because, you know, we're of course we're only watching them the day in October and writing about them the next day. We're not watching any ahead of time. I planned to go ahead, <laughs> yeah. and now I'm like panicking because I'm like, I, oh that's my gosh. how it always happens. I, I'm like only a month into the a week into the month. Now I'm like, okay, we've got to start cranking these films out. So I think that really is it. Everybody have a happy Halloween. Thanks for listening. Thanks for writing us a review on iTunes if you're so inclined. I guess we should say what we're doing next month. Yes, that's a good idea. We, we do have the next couple of months lined up, so homework for those of you. And now we're getting back on track. We're finally going to pull the trigger on the uh, Dr. Moreau films that we were going to do a couple of times now. So that's definitely going to happen in November. We'll be coming down off that post-Halloween high. So we're going to be covering, in detail, three of the films, Island of Lost Souls with Bela Bela Lugosi, as well as... The Twilight People, which will be a first-time viewing for me, and Island of Dr. Moreau from 77, which I haven't seen that for many, many, many years. And then to a lesser degree, we'll be talking about some of the other films like Terror is a Man or the infamous Val Kilmer, Marlon Brando fiasco, which in itself could be a whole podcast. And then just a sneak peek, in December, we're going to be doing the It's Alive trilogy as well. And we've been looking at the numbers, what number we're at. We'll just say this, that we're coming up on episode 25, and there's Christmas on the 25th of December, so we might have a surprise for you in the holiday month uh, as we all begin to 
dream of sugar plums dancing on our head, we might decide to throw you for a loop and, and, and give you a special Christmas treat. You know, I'm no numerologist, but there's almost something too good in that to not do something with. Number 25 on the 25th. Yeah, we, we couldn't pass that up. So that's your sneak peek there. And, and that's what we got coming up for the next few months. So there's your homework. All of the Moreau films are easily available because I just purchased two of them recently. And the other one, Island of Lost Souls, is a Criterion collection. So now Terra's a Man might be a little harder, but I think that that's, I, that's available on YouTube still. So, And unfortunately, you can find the 97 version <laughs> if you so desire. There's an interesting documentary on that is on Shudder. So if you, I still have Shudder. I didn't. <laughs> I know. I still have it. There's still films I want to watch on it. So, nonetheless, next month, and really, the It's Alive trilogy just came out on Blu-ray as well a few months back. So, the next couple of months should be very easy for you to get your hands on the films we're covering. Looking forward to that. Looking forward to getting all the feedback from everyone, the contest. Thank you all again for listening. Happy Halloween. Goodbye. Happy Halloween. Happy Halloween.